Hi, good morning and welcome. Uh, I'm Nandan Amladi. I run Investor Relations at Everbridge. Thank you all so much for making the trip to see us. Uh, this is a hybrid event, so we're also webcasting uh, for those of you online. Uh, thank you, too, for joining us. Uh, we have a pretty full agenda, and uh, we'll try to make this as interactive because it's a hybrid event. We'll be getting questions uh, online as well. So we're going to um, – we have a pretty full agenda, roughly 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., and uh, – uh, let me start with a, a security briefing. Um, we have two exits at either end of the room. Um, the restrooms are out uh, past the elevators to your left. In case of an emergency, I think most of you have left your mobile numbers. We will gather outside. Uh, there will be a notification to your phones uh, that comes through our software. So uh, with that, uh, let me review the safe harbor statement in great detail. Um, and uh, this, of course, is, is part of our standard uh, language, uh, legal language. Um, so the, um, let me touch on the agenda really quickly. Um, we'll start with Dave Wagner, our, our new CEO. Uh, we've had, obviously, a lot of changes. Uh, this has been a, a big uh, transition year for the company. So you'll hear about, um, you know, our plans uh, for the next several years. Um, then Happy Wang, who's our head of engineering, uh, will walk through our platform vision. Uh, we'll have a short break. There's lunch being served outside. Uh, you can bring that back. Um, and then after that, we'll go to a platform demo. So Vic's team has been uh, practicing uh, for the last several weeks to give you a, a feel for exactly what our software does and how companies use it. And then after you see the demo, uh, we'll have a customer panel, so live customers who are here in person to talk about how they use our platform and how they derive benefit from it. So um, our Chief Security Officer, Tracy Reinhold, will host that session. Um, and then finally, uh, Patrick Brickley, our CFO, will round out uh, with the financial roadmap uh, before we go to a Q&A session. Um, and then for those of you who are here in person, uh, we have a special treat. And part of the reason we're hosting this event here in this facility, um, on the eighth floor is our um, office and our risk uh, intelligence monitoring center. So you'll get to walk through. Um, see how our analysts do their work um, and uh, really get to see the product come alive in, in the way that the customer might see it. So with that, let me hand over to our CEO, Dave Wagner. Thank you, Nandan. You gave me five extra minutes. Wow. We'll see how I do staying within the within my time allotment. I have been looking forward uh, to this event uh, for at for four for four months, uh, Nandan will tell you, Pat will tell you, anybody in the SMT will tell you that I've been looking forward to this event as part of my onboarding. One of the investor calls that I took uh, very early on, they asked me, Dave, if you could get one thing done in your first year, what would it be? That was a great question. I thought about it um, for ten or fifteen seconds, and I said alignment. I would really, if I could do one thing in my first 12 months as CEO of Everbridge, I'd like to achieve alignment. Um, aligning our colleagues internally to the, to the most important objectives of the company so that they um, have the information are empowered to do their best work. Aligning our, our products and delivery for our customers and those, and those integrations. And, and last but not least, aligning our shareholders. And so as I set out my onboarding plans uh, for the first 
we're roughly 135 days in. I didn't know exactly when we'd be able to schedule this event. At the time, I, I made the, uh, the onboarding 100-day plan. We've had three really big aligning events, in my way of thinking, in the last, um, in the last 30 days um, on, my, on my process for alignment. We had the um, top 60 or 70 global leaders of the company into our Burlington headquarters right after earnings call in November um, to focus on alignment and empowerment around our 2023 um, objectives and key results, aligning those to the budget. Um, last week, we had our 30 of our very top customers and partners uh, into this same location uh, for a customer event, aligning them around how we're adjusting our, our future forward. And so that was a really big milestone event. And then last but not least, this event um, uh, to focus on aligning uh, us and what we're doing and our, and our roles forward with our shareholders. And so I take that really seriously. I'm really excited about the opportunity. I've done hundreds and hundreds of shareholder meetings. I was trying to count them up in my head this morning. It's well over 250, 300 shareholder meetings since I joined. I've had dozens and dozens, uh, maybe approaching 100 customer meetings in my first 135 days. I've met almost half of the Everbridge colleagues face-to-face um, in these first 135 days, and I've done over 200 employee one-on-ones to, to, you know, to become on board, to come to this place today where we're ready to share um, uh, with you our investors, our aligning uh, plans forward. And so, welcome. Really sincerely welcome. I appreciate you being here in person. If my um, interactions with, with investors over the last several weeks is, is a consistent indicator, I would expect five to ten times as many people are participating via the webcast as who are in the room here. So um, I want to make sure the, the webcast participants are acknowledged and um, encouraged to participate uh, in the virtual experience as well as you can as well. And thank you for being here as, as well. The, the day, um, the message from the day should all come through relatively aligned to you. Um, my talk in particular should be a microcosm of the, of, of, of the day as it, as it unpacks uh, throughout the four or five hours we're together. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about, you know, is our vision, our market opportunity, where we see the potential of this company going. Of course, that vision is built upon the foundation of our history, and so we'll, we'll spend time on that. Um, we want to spend time today, you know, really centered around our value creation plan, um, this aspirational plan we have uh, to get to a billion dollars of annual recurring revenue in the in the in the Jim Collins good to great way of thinking, you know, the manager team's big, hairy, audacious goal and the, what, what we have on, on, on our desks of, of the, our path to a billion dollars. I want to, want to talk through uh, that with you. In talking to shareholders in advance of the meeting, they said, Dave, if that's the only thing you do is talk about your profit for a billion, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> I want some milestones between here and there. And so, between Patrick and I, we'll have um, some more details, particularly when it gets to Patrick. I'm saving some. I used to be a CFO, so I know how it feels to have the CEO say everything important and then trying to wrap it up. <laughs> so I'm trying to save a couple key – he's laughing at me – a couple key things for Patrick. He'll unpack um, the 23 model in a little more detail 
um, that help unpack a little bit more the, the path to, to rule of, of 40 uh, and reinforce the aspirational billion dollars of ARR that we're working to. So hopefully you'll see alignment in the way we're working as a leadership team to, to build out our plans. Um, and then last but not least, I'm going to spend some time on, on ESG. Um, to me, ESG is 100% consistent with shareholder value creation and a little bit on how we think about that, um, both internally within you know, the Everbridge control, you know, the board and I as a part of um, the governance of the company. But the more exciting thing to me is how Everbridge participates with our customers um, in, in the uh, overall health and, and governance of our global community. So we'll talk about shareholder value creation and ESG uh, in my piece. So one of the things that uh, to me is, is, uh, is, is so great about Everbridge is, is our history, is the fact that we are now um, in our 20th year. We're going to be celebrating our 20th year all the way through, through until November 2023. And our history is our foundation that, we, that we're built upon. Um, we were founded right after 9-11. The founders of the company um, experienced that event and understood how important it was to communicate to the doctors and nurses and healthcare to, to rally them. In the event of crisis, that created the first cloud-based multi-tenant um, notification system that was the beginning of Everbridge from which, from which we built. We built over 6,000 uh, customers, we've leveraged that capability uh, to enter into the public warning market and participate in government country-level projects, more than 12 uh, countries in Europe, 20 globally, use our technology for keeping their entire citizenry safe. Many, many states, counties, um, cities across the United States um, use our technology to keep their people safe. Uh, from those early beginnings, we made um, you know, acquisitions to bring in risk intelligence data, the ability to visualize that risk intelligence data, and connected that into our critical event management platform, which now has 255 enterprise companies globally. I'll talk a lot more about those CEM customers, because in our vision, where we're going to a billion dollars, it's that core customer set that we think will drive uh, the majority of our, of our growth going forward. So we are in this um, great position of being a category leader in critical event management. It's a category that um, you know, we believe is going to enjoy a lot of tailwinds um, as we move forward over the next decade, as organizations become more and more aware of their role in protecting their employees, their role in participating um, in, a, in a global ecosystem that keeps people safe and organizations running faster. So that's our history. That's where we are today. We're not changing our mission nor our purpose. Keeping people safe and organizations running is what we do. It's one of the things that attracted me to Everbridge. Um, I spent my career up and until Everbridge, or the vast majority of my career, in cybersecurity. And I felt that that was a really high calling. My colleagues and I worked with our customers. Um, we worked with government agencies. We were a part of elevating the resiliency of, of, of 
of the world around cybersecurity, largely to protect money. And, and that's an important, you know, an important calling. When I bring myself here and protecting people, it's a much higher calling. That's what keeps all the Everbridge employees super focused and passionate on what we do. It's what connects our customers. Um, as I said earlier, we had our, um, our North American um, Product Advisory Council meeting just last week. Um, when you get a chance to meet our customers, they are ex-FBI, ex-Secret Service, ex-Military Intelligence. They have dedicated their lives, ex-State Policemen. They've dedicated their lives to protecting people, and in their retirement, they're moving into, uh, into enterprise, and they're taking that same mentality forward, that same commitment to keeping people safe and applying that to the, to the enterprise. And it's really exciting to be a part of that ecosystem because unlike cybersecurity where we had some competitive tension, one bank wanted to differentiate from another bank because they kept their consumers safer, I do not see any of that competitive tension among our customers when it comes to keeping people safe. It's a very, very collaborative uh, environment, and uh, it just screams out for a platform and sharing information across the platform, sharing best practices, sharing incident response templates, um, so that we can all elevate uh, together in this high calling of our mission to keep people safe. But as we think forward and think forward about the opportunity for Everbridge, our aspiration is for Everbridge to become synonymous with organizational resilience. If I want my organization to be resilient, I want to have Everbridge. Um, that's what we're aspiring to do, uh, leveraging data um, to make and help our customers make um, intelligence decisions to, to know, respond, and improve their security posture um, using data, much like uh, we've done in cybersecurity, using data to be able to make really good risk intelligence decisions, using data to have a really crisp inventory of our assets. What do I care about? Do I know where it all is? Can I correlate what I care about with the risks in the organization so I can be in a position to respond? Once I make the response, how do I improve um, going forward? We want to be the company that um, digitizes organizational resilience. And that's the tailwind that we feel that we're entering into at Everbridge, where we've been entering into at Everbridge as we introduce technology, data, and a platform uh, to help those organizations be more resilient. So what is resilience? It's been around forever. Some people say, Wagner, that's a super old word. You don't want to be resilient. That's, that's a tired old world. Um, I really resonated with this uh, Boston Consulting Group study that was published right after COVID. I was a, um, a CEO at the time. I was, had been the CEO of a cybersecurity company with knowledge workers, and I really didn't think that there was much for me to worry about. I mean, how hard can you get hurt, you know, at a, at a keyboard? Um, and so my people safety thinking was, you know, I had a pretty pretty low bar, and all of a sudden. March 13th, 12th, whatever date it was, it's like, holy smokes, you know, my people could get, you know, could hurt each other. Just, you know, it really changed the way I thought about my responsibilities as a CEO and people safety. And the BCG piece that came across my desk, at least um, just a few months later, um, really helped me understand what it means to be resilient, to be prepared 
to enjoy better outcomes when a crisis occurs. And so how do we, that the area under the green curve between the red curve, that's the opportunity value of being a resilient company. When we're working with our larger enterprise clients and we're working through the RFPs, we have ways that we demonstrate direct return on investment. We're investing in a resilience platform to tighten the period of recovery um, from preparedness and unpreparedness and that difference. And I think organizations are understanding that more. I know, you know me as a CEO, I'm developing a deeper understanding of what it needs means to be resilient and what does it mean to have the tools um, to, to, be, to be resilient. Our market opportunity um, is vast and growing, and um, we're not fully done with, with our updated market opportunity work, but the way the company has presented its market opportunity in the past is a $41 billion TAM. I think that is, is one good way to look at it. That's a company study that looks at the, the 25,000 plus organizations who should take advantage of our technology, multiplying the, the, the price uh, forward and saying if we had 100% penetration, yeah, that's what, what it would look like. We're spending time with analysts like Forrester and Gartner and Bain and, and BCG, and we're trying to get a tighter view of what our market sizing looks like. And we'll have more to report on this in the coming couple of quarters. But everything we're seeing from these, our own work and from these top agencies, the critical event management market refined, you know, kind of tightening down to who are the enterprises that we really think uh, would purchase this technology, building it bottoms up in terms of looking at uh, the risk intelligence market, the mass communications market, and adding that up. Um, we get a, a, 20, a refined $20 billion uh, market opportunity. Every time we look to the refining uh, data, we're getting these growth rates in this 12 to 15% CAGR for the, um, the uh, range of solutions that we provide that make up critical event management. So that, that thinking is you know, just you know, absolutely you know, the, the most transparent current thinking of our market size and we're going to engage specifically with, the, with an agency to, um, to refine that even further. The next slide is, to me, a really good summary slide of, of the day. You know, can kind of connect the things that each of the SMT members are talking about throughout the course of the day into these same three things that we've been anchoring our communications on all throughout uh, 2022. You know, how we're focusing and aligning and executing as a team to create uh, shareholder value. You know, thing one is improving our go-to-market um, efficiency. Um, you know, some, some, this is not everything, but some of the very specific things we're doing, uh, you, know, you know, since I joined and, you know, more specifically um, as we align on our 2023 execution, you know, we're really elevating digital demand generation and focusing our marketing spend more tightly <clears throat> on, on d demand gen focusing on building a data-driven sales and marketing organization. So with the elevation of Paul Robinson in North American sales, I've elevated a, a data-driven sales leader with the hiring of David Alexander, who's in the back of the room, as our new chief marketing officer. He brings, coming from sales early in his career, coming from F5 most recently, he brings a very digital demand gen-centric way of thinking to, uh, to Everbridge that we're excited about. We're aligning internally. Happy has the aligning chart in her presentation. Where's Happy? Um, I hide my hill. Happy is going to present uh, how we're aligning the, the company 
around our platform elements and around the three main product families and getting the accountability and, and data uh, reporting and, and, and uh, roadmaps built to align our customers to our engineers. Is my, align, my perfect alignment would be what the customer story is all the way through the engineer. We have really good alignment and, and, and accountability there. Um, we're enhancing our customer success motions, getting really focused on our ARR snowball, which you'll get tired of hearing by the end of the day, but elevating uh, that work. Um, we do believe that keeping people safe applies to all organizations, but for sure what we're seeing is it's the larger organizations that are making the biggest investments early on uh, in this digitizing enterprise resilience. And so we're honing our focus as a leadership team into the large organizations, 5,000 uh, employee and above organizations. That's a lot, an aligning decision that we've made uh, this year. We're aligning on 100% channel to become more efficient in our go-to-market. So these are some of the things that we're doing as we, um, we're not waiting till January, but these are some of the things we've been doing in January, OKR coming to kickoff is the, um, kind of the crystallizing event uh, for me for these go-to-market efficiency executions. <clears throat> um, on the product side, uh, we're improving data availability. Uh, to me, you know, we want to empower ideally every employee with you know, the data they need to do their job and so that um, they can deliver phenomenal customer experiences. So we've done some really important projects uh, this year to improve uh, Data availability, happy. I'll talk about pathways to platform. I'm going to talk more about those um, in my next couple of slides. Building out this platform, leveraging our large data set to help our customers um, be in a better position to know um, and respond to critical events. And then this focused execution, hopefully you're hearing from me, um, the, the, uh, the move to annual recurring revenue. Again, you know, back to my eighth or ninth or tenth day with the company, as I was feeling firsthand um, some of the discontinuity between our shareholder base and, and the management team, um, it became very clear. I didn't take 250 meetings to understand that investors really wanted the disclosure of this annual recurring revenue. And that's the, a big reason why we're gathered here today was to make that disclosure, um, and which Patrick will share. And But we've been aligning since I joined. We're aligning around... Um, ARR growth as, the, as the, the number one metric as we build out our, our modifications and tweaks to our compensation plans um, for the salespeople as we enter 2023. We're really working to improve the alignment around growing our annual recurring revenue. We're executing a lot of internal efficiency programs, all with the purpose of maintaining category leadership. One of the great things about the 20-year history of Everbridge is you know, we're the undisputed leader in critical event management. And um, as we're balancing our profitability, as we're balancing our growth opportunity, we're focused on maintaining category leadership. That category leadership, you know, we believe, is thing one in terms of creating shareholder value, is, is um, building upon uh, uh, the strong advantage that we have as, as the uh, leader of critical event management, delivering enterprise resilience as our companies increasingly digitize the way they think about people's safety. So this is the way um, the, the, the leadership team and I are thinking about the billion dollars. Um, I don't know why 
just because maybe every CEO does this. There's something like there's something magical. There's nothing magical about a billion dollars. It's not that much different than 999 million. Uh, but ever since I was a, um, a controller at Entrust back in in the late 90s, I've had this aspiration to be leading a, a billion dollar a company. It's what one of the reasons I came here to Everbridge was our scale. And so we think about what does it look like uh, when we're a billion dollars of annual recurring revenue. And the way we're thinking about that is we start with this great history that I'm talking about, 255 uh, customers that are on the CEM platform today. When I unpack uh, those customers, they're not all over $250,000 today, uh, but the average is over $450,000. So when I think about the billion, we want to have 1,000 customers with more than 250,000 of ARR that average 500,000 ARR so that we have half a billion of our ARR in our top 1,000 customers. And there'll be lots of room for many, many more customers, but we're focusing on building this ARR snowball to a billion by adding and, and focus on these larger enterprise accounts. So path one is the CEM base that we already have that already averages nearly the, uh, the ARR that we need to achieve our aspirational billion. Second pool, uh, I've been talking about pretty carefully since I joined. I gave some pretty careful disclosures, or I felt I did, on the last earnings call around these pathways to platform. And there are way more than two pathways to platform, but the two we're laser-focused on, uh, thing one are the risk center nine to CEM migrations. We have over 150 uh, customers in that cohort who are enterprise customers who have been joining risk intelligence uh, from Everbridge. You know, I'll talk about more um, for um, for a long time, and we haven't had product parity to really, um, not force, but to really to really be able to strongly encourage them to move. And 2023 is the year where we are doing that. We've delivered 60% of uh, use case parity as of September, where that gives us 60% of the. 150 have everything they need to begin moving now and through the roadmap and of course the remainder of 23 by um, this time next year we'll have 100% and by early 24 we expect to have all of those customers moving the platform as they move into platform that gives us the opportunity to cross sell you'll see the power of that as you see the demos throughout the course of the day and that will accept is, is first pathway to accelerating the uh, number of CEM customers. Second pathway has been the most important path, or this means the second pathway has been the most important. Um, the Anvil customers are about 100, they'll come in 2024. Then after those conversions, mass notification. That's the core business we started 20 years ago, over 6,000 customers. Um, we believe that four to 600 of those customers are really good candidates still to make that journey from the point solution mass notification into the platform. Uh, CEM, so that's the other cohort we're looking at. Those pathways would get us to a thousand customers. We don't want to have any churn, but we know life is life, and we would have some certain churn. So we're out driving new logos and uh, new customers into the CEM platform. This is another obviously source of uh, of our thousand uh, customers as we move forward to the to the billion dollar pro, uh, program. And so I wanted to share four examples. These are obviously um, company-curated examples. They may, may be our best examples. We have you know, many, many others, but four of 255 of these customer journeys. This first customer 
uh, is a payment processor. They're a brand you all know, you all use. They, you, we, trans, we transact um, through them every day. They joined the Everbridge family on IT alerting with a very specific use case in, in, uh, in 2014 for $60,000. As they matured as an organization, they took advantage of more and more of our IT alerting uh, services. In 2018, when we added IDD and the visualization component, they made a big step forward and then made a, a, an even bigger step forward in 2019 and 2020. So they have moved from a $60,000 AR customer to an $850,000 a year AR customer. That's um, 14x growth in seven years. That's one example of the power of the pathway, the platform, and, and, and growing these customers. The second example is, that, is a small pharmaceutical company, very profitable uh, pharmaceutical company that spends a lot of time uh, focusing on people safety. When I meet with this chief security officer, he is, I don't know what the right word is, tenacious, rabid, hyper-focused on every one of their employees, Sean Smiling and making sure that he understands where they are, kind of almost a very best-in-class um, uh, for, for a small organization. You can see they've um, moved from $13,000 mass notification customer um, to they are now $465,000 ARR customer. Relatively small employee base. Um, they've grown 35 times in 11 years. Exciting thing about this customer, they've been acquired. They're now part of a much larger pharmaceutical, and we're meeting with both the, the larger parent and the, and the younger, and we're working to, to help them think through how they bring the two organizations together from a people safety perspective and uh, making uh, you know, best in class at an even larger scale. I like this example. Uh, this is a, a, a Fortune 500 software company. They make software for both consumers and small businesses. Again, a brand we would all, all know, and maybe not all of us. Um, that many of us would know. What I like about this one is they've touched Everbridge from all of our major acquisitions, starting with um, with risk intelligence and mass notifications. So um, we were two different companies then. As we've come together with IT alerting, crisis management, um, now moving into to, uh, uh, people resilience with, with the Anvil product, they've moved from 32,000 of annual recurring revenue to 600,000 and recurring revenue, 19 times increase in 13 years. And last but not least, my very favorite, because it's the biggest, is one of the top five banks um, in the United States. Again, uh, they've experienced Everbridge through, through multiple brands, through the history of acquisition from 100K to over 4 million um, in seven years. And the great thing about this account is there's still a lot more room to go and, and grow. And we actively work um, with uh, this security officer team on how they can invest and become even more resilient as they think about the, the branches and, and, and the places you know, all over, particularly North America, but all over the world where they're focusing on customer and, and people safety. So these are just four examples, obviously curated positive examples, but all 255 of those CEM customers enjoy, uh, we enjoy from them uh, a, a growth in the spend. They enjoy the power of the platform. They enjoy the, the digitization and improving the resilience posture uh, of their organization. So we're really proud to, to be a part of, of each of those customers. Um, this chart, you know, maybe is the second or um, first most important chart in the uh, in the presentation. This is a little bit deeper unpacking of how we think about 
um, our road to Rule 40. Patrick will walk through this in a little more detail. This is one where I am. We're both going to talk about about this chart. And so we've talked um, in our last earnings call about you know, 2023 with with a pretty high level specificity, right? So this baseline six to seven percent growth, this clear line of sight to 85 million dollars of EBITDA. You do that math, you kind of are landing um, right around uh, 25 on the on the rule of 40. Um, and we we said, that, look, we we plan to get um, you know, to the rule of 30 and and then the rule of 40. And what does that march march what's that march forward look like? So first, just our voicing over the numbers. Uh, 23 to 24, we think will be um, kind of the, the biggest expansion year over year in, as with the way we see today, this, this uh, five-year journey to the rule of 40. That expansion is going to come primarily from the waterfall down that we talked about in terms of the six to seven baseline. A lot of those are kind of non-repeatable. We expect to waterfall uh, back up. So we're looking at roughly a 500 um, basis points, but a, a five-point increase uh, to the rule of 40 as we think about um, 24 from 23 as we think about the revenue growth um, expansion um, um, in that next year. And then each year that forward, we see 250, 300 basis points or two and a half to three points uh, improvement on the rule of 40. Our focus is driving as, as much of that as possible from growth. We want to maintain category leadership. We want to be growth first and we will be growing profitably. And so that um, fuzzy white in the middle represents the work that the leadership team and I are doing to make sure that we're in investing uh, to drive and balance growth and profitability across this five-year horizon as we um, hit the rule of 40 uh, in FY27. So hopefully that a little more color helps you understand how the leadership team and I are working through that. Patrick will provide a little more detail um, in his uh, in his section. Uh, he'll present that same chart again. Uh, last but not least, on our shareholder value creation journey is our commitment to ESG. Um, I am, you know, of the camp of you know CEOs and members of a board of director that um, I embrace ESG. I think. Um, ESG done properly is all about sustainability, sustainability, resiliency. It's what we do at Everbridge. It's making sure that Everbridge is here 20 years from now. Everbridge doesn't get smacked down by a brand um, because we don't have the proper cybersecurity. That Everbridge is contributing to our employees and making it a great place to work. So, part of it. so I, I see these, I don't see these as this, I, I see them as as uh, ESG is something that makes us all better. And I'm really proud of Everbridge's um, participation in helping our customers achieve resiliency and being a part of their plans to improve um, their impact on climate change or reaction to climate change, social and governance. So a little more specifically, what do we, what do we think about? Um, the, the E of ESG, we have a really powerful story at Everbridge. We participate actively in, in COP26 and COP27, participating very actively in the thinking forward of what does public safety look like for uh, the nations that don't have access to the resources and capital to put in early warning systems like we saw last quarter in, in, in Norway. The, the, the ability to um, reduce the impact to loss of human life through early warning and notification is really high. 
And so what's our responsibility as developed nations to participate um, together in finding a way forward to make public warning as a service for nations that, that don't have the resources that, um, that we have. And so we're participating actively with that. We participate with our county uh, governments, our state governments. You know, the, the Hurricane Ian in Florida is something that was you know, catastrophic. You know, but we helped. We sent 10.5 million notices across 1,500 different customers, many, many different messages, to the people in Florida to, to help reduce the loss of life, um, uh, you know, from that massively catastrophic event. And, and we extend that responsibility with our customers all across the world. Internally at Everbridge, we're focusing on our energy consumption. It may be a small thing, but we're doing, uh, focusing on what we can as well to, to reduce our impact on the environment. Uh, from a governance perspective, our platform really helps our customers uh, fulfill their duty of care. You're going to hear some great customer stories today about how our customers think so carefully about the safety of uh, the people that are empowered to their care. And uh, so we think our, our suite uniquely situates ourselves or boards of directors to be exercising that right of care. Um, I told you in my opening, this event is really about the, the leadership team and the board and I uh, sharing our commitment um, to improve disclosures. And so the anti-recurring revenue disclosure we're making today is, you know, to me, definitely um, aligning with what we are hearing from shareholders that they're looking for uh, from the company and, and from the board. Uh, we have a strong employee compliance program, ISO certified, a lot of focus on, on as I said, cybersecurity um, uh, and privacy. I just saw Noah Webster. Noah it could wave his hand. Noah is our brand-new chief legal officer joined on Monday. Uh, he worked with me at Zix and is really, really strong at uh, compliance and um, uh, privacy and security programs. And so we're, we're, uh, we are investing in, uh, in, in leadership in that area. And last but not least, um, people, our commitment to keeping people safe. It's the core of our mission. I've talked about that at length, and I just ran out of time. Um, but we have a, a demonstrated commitment um, to a diversity, equity, inclusion here at the company, uh, in 2023, we're increasing our investment in employee development and learning. Um, we're investing in employee savings plans. We're in an interesting time here, right? So we've had to let go 300 colleagues in the last year. I was thinking about my holiday party uh, talk um, that I'll be giving on Thursday evening. 2022 is not a year that I want to repeat for Everbridge. Um, you, know, you like to go to the holiday party and the CEO say, that, you know, wasn't a great year. This is not <laughs> a year that I want I want, I want to um, repeat, we've had to do some difficult things for employees um, in the past 12 months. We're in a tough inflationary environment. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to invest in our employees. We're going to invest in learning. We're going to invest in, in savings plans. We're going to invest in making sure the best we can that our tenured employees, um, the ones that I think drive the most value to the organization, that those tenured employees feel, feel valued. And so these are our, our efforts to, um, to continue to keep um, Everbridge as a great place to work. So, again, I'm going to just I'm going to end with uh, with uh, with where I started. Uh, today is all about sharing with you um, um, our, our vision why we're so, so excited, everyone in the SMT, to be here, a part of this market, a part of this opportunity. It's talking about our future value creation path, um, how we want to work with our customers 
uh, worked in, in this ecosystem of people safety to grow to uh, a billion dollars. It's about our commitment to our shareholders to, to drive uh, shareholder value. So hopefully it's not just me you hear that from, but that's the, kind of the residual message uh, for the full uh, for the day, and, and hopefully I've introduced that um, uh, well for you. I now get to hand the, the, uh, the, the platform over to um, Happy Wong. Happy um, is a uniquely talented um, uh, engineering and product leader. Uh, she brings um, so just some fantastic life experiences here to Everbridge, having worked at, at uh, high-growth uh, cloud software companies, um, including uh, ServiceNow and uh, um, and, and, and PayPal. Uh, she's very, very smart, very, very aggressive, and, and very, very excited to, to be here. So um, Happy's going to walk through our platform vision and our uh, product roadmap. Thank you, Dave. Well, welcome, everyone, to our Investor Day. I know um, it's, it's super busy usually towards the end of the year, and everyone's travel um, around, you know, a different state to come here. Um, so I am super, super excited in the next 30 minutes to get to share with all of you our that resilience platform, the vision, and the roadmap. Um, so a little, little bit about myself. My name is Happy. Um, I joined Everbridge about um, 18 months ago. I feel like I've been here already a couple of years. Time just fly by really fast. So I'm actually based out of San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, I lived in Silicon Valley for the last 22 years. Um, I feel very fortunate in my career. I work with a, a lot of wonderful companies, the big you know, company like PayPal, ServiceNow, and a gazillion, a lot of a startup company. But one thing I'm always super proud and feel rewarding is leading technology product team to create products customer love. Because I think this is the key to any business to be successful, to be building a billion dollars business, our inspiration. So I'm going to touch a little bit about, you know, a few categories here. One is I would love to share, um, is super proud to share some product awards Everbridge have been winning past decade. Uh, we're going to share some customer testimonies. Uh, this is all the feedback we've been getting from customer, and we'll continue to listen to customer. In the later, you will have actually real session. Our amazing chief security officer, Tracy, is going to moderate our customer panel. We have some wonderful customer that's going to here to share how they use our product, how they want to use our product. And then we will talk about CM platform vision. This is a super important. Uh, you heard uh, our CEO Dave says, pathway to platform. So how the technology product team can help to fulfill that vision. So I will share our architecture. I will share our product roadmap. And I will also share a few very cool demos we've been doing. And obviously later today, our wonderful, amazing customer excellence team is going to show a lot of live demos. Super excited. Um, last one, I would, you know, share the 2023, the product roadmap, very high level, but just get everyone a flavor. What are we being working on? What are we going to focus? So this slide is to talk about Everbridge, who we are recognized as a leader in emergency notification category. 
Um, as Dave said, mass notification is our core product. Obviously, we are in this leader for many, many years. In fact, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary. So Everbridge, if everyone probably knows at this point, uh, we call ourselves a 911 company. We started this company a year after um, disaster 911 event. And our company mission is keep people safe and keep a business running faster. I, I would admit this is probably the most important reason I chose Everbridge 18 months ago to join this company because it touches my heart every time I hear the vision, uh, every time I, you know, I talk to customers. So we really, day to day, all the work we're doing is to people, keep people safe, is touch people's life. Um, one thing I didn't want to mention, we are the category leader in mass education. However, in the last 20 years, we have been involved. So we are no longer is a massive company. We are a platform company, and we will continue to work really hard to transform us to a platform, um, you know, player in this resilient solution. One other thing is we are be able to present our product to, um, to in the business operation, people resilience, smart security, and public safety. You will actually see some really cool demo out of those solution pillars. Um, and all we, we, you know, a couple, you know, awards just to point out, we're the best teams winning the product designer. Um, we are the top-rated software company, and they did some customer testimony talk about how they love our platform to be efficiency um, and effective, can, can do an end-to-end -end solution. So all this award is really um, uh, demonstrate, right, average, we are the market leader, but there are a little bit more touch on the physical space. Um, but next slide, you know, uh, we are equally strong on the IT side. So we are 15 consecutive quarters. We are the leader in incident management and IT alerting. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone probably knew last year we acquired a company called XMatter. Uh, XMatter is really is to help us enhance, enhance our digital offering. And uh, you know, we are the peer spot number one ranked. And we also, you can see a lot of award we winning is also in outside the U.S. So we have top performer in Asia, in India. We are winning awards almost in different you know, market sectors, so enterprise client or middle market. So we are, you know, one thing that I want people to hear is we are the um, leader on both sectors, um, physical and digital. But our goal is how we multiply the value to bring them together. Um, that's why we are working really hard to our one platform vision. So um, this slide just to share um, some customer feedback. Um, one of the things is Everbridge is doing really well, and we will continue doing very well, is to constantly to have the dialogue with our customer. Because in the end, uh, our business can only be success uh, if we can deliver customer value, deliver customer outcome. Um, so early uh, in October, we actually had a um, customer advisory board meeting in EU, London. We meet a lot of EMA customers. Last week, uh, we actually had a North America product advisory meeting, as uh, Dave mentioned. We have uh, 30 plus customers, and uh, some actual customers, they're here again. <laughs> so they will be on our customer panel. Uh, so we shared a lot of uh, feedback, um, and this has also helped us to really enhance our product offering to make sure we are working on the right thing and solving right customer problems. Um, so a couple of highlighting, I want you know, one thing I want to read out. I have been using Everbridge for seven years, and that has never let me down. 
but we have a lot of loyal customers. Um, and every time, you know, when I talk to them, when our leadership team talks to them, it just get us more excited, right? More inspired to see how we actually continue can make their life easier. Uh, one thing is we are is a differentiator between us with a lot of competitors. Again, right now we have a lot of competitors in, in competing with us in this space. But one thing we are doing really well is our product, our platform system is super reliable and uh, scalable. And trustworthy is our branding. Later, our chief marketing officer, they will talk a little bit about our branding as well. One thing is, it's really our brand. So people using our product because they know they can rely on us. Our, pro- our platform is always up. We knew even any system, your internal system we are down, our platform has to be up to send your notification. Uh, so this is the one highlighting, and the other feedback is really talk about how people can continue using our platform to be um, more uh, is the end-to-end solution. So this is exciting. So um, we talk a lot past the platform. We talk a lot about billion-dollar business. We talk about how we improve the profitability. But this is how we think as a technology and the product team, we can help Everbridge achieve that vision. So one platform. Um, I'm actually very fortunately um, work at uh, probably and a lot of investors know is one of the D famous um, platform workflow company in the world, ServiceNow. I actually um, work, um, I joined ServiceNow even pre-IPO days. One of the things at time, our vision is also make, um, they started as a platform as service concept. They want IT automation, right? Everyone think about IT automation today, ServiceNow platform. But this is our inspiration for us. I want everyone to think about resilience platform. There's one single platform in the world can provide a holistic resilient solution is average platform. So we're working really hard. Every leader in company, you know, of course, I'm speaking for product technology, but our go-to-market team, so, you know, um, you know GNN team, finance team, every single team is working on this. So for us particularly, we want to be able to fast, more accurate response to external, internal threats. We want to be managing what is important you know, for us, in our context, the people assets, uh, resilience to be proactive, and not just uh, reactive. So I will touch a little bit about the later slides about how we're using data, AI machine learning, to turn this. And our demo session later, you will also see some of the flavor of that. And we want to continue to be an enterprise class, reliable, and scalable, right? That's how we set us compare, you know, be a market leader versus a lot of other startup company and the market leader because we are reliable. This is a, we will not sacrifice system reliability, scalability for something else. The last one is flexible integration with all the enterprise. So we will talk about how we are actually building this into our eco um, system. So this is really at a high level the platform and we are again, you know, we're going to emphasize again, we want to be knowing early, we want to be respond fast, and we want to be improved continuously. So this is probably the oversimplified uh, the product architecture diagram, but I just want to put out there, just give people a, a visually see what we're doing here. Uh, if you look at this, um, um, pretty much there was two emphasis. Obviously, one is on the site, you know, those are a lot of different applications. And then on the bottom is what we call the foundational platform effort. So we need to build a, we need to continue building application, right? So that's how we deliver customer value. But in order to 
fast. So one of the things, obviously, you Dave talk about product efficiency. So we want to be able to deliver fast velocity. We want to be continually involved. We want to be able to integrate everything into one platform. So there is a lot of foundational block we have to do. One is the API layer is super important. We will talk about because, you know, um, without API, you pretty much today, you can't do anything without API <laughs> data. Data is power data. You know, uh, for us, obviously, it's resilience data. So almost every single company right now is double down effort on the data. And I will tell you, and I actually talked to a few investors before this meeting, is one thing we have advantage on the data side is we actually have a real data. We have a real custom data. 18 years historical data. There's no other company has it. You know, um, the last two companies I worked before joined Everbridge is all AI machine learning startup company in Silicon Valley. And one thing is, um, is you know, for us the struggle is at the beginning before we actually can onboarding customer to reuse, use our product. We don't have a customer data. We have to buy a lot of training data. We have to offer a lot of data. And um, AI machine learning, if you build a model on the training data, is not the same as on the customer data and the historical data. So this is super powerful. Um, and, and in the middle, user interface. You know, people talk about happy. You know, how do we improve our user experience? We know there's some area we need to work out, so we want to actually put a unified UX on top of it. But really, the middle piece is our core CMA platform. So we want to be able to build a instant management is life cycle. You are landing in our platform. You don't need to go to a different tools in a company. So we talked to a lot of customers today. Um, some customer they said, we're using Everbridge doing crisis management. But my peers using another tool to doing insulin management and another tool to doing the staff. And so people know, right, if you're using multiple tools, Definitely first, you know, financial perspective is costly. You know, our CFO every day says, Happy, can you consult some tools? You know, because we spend a lot of money, right, to actually using a lot of tools and things. Um, so every company, the CFO, they are looking at how many tools you want to use. Can you use the last tool to achieve same, same goal? That's why platform play is super important. The other thing is um, resilience, right, the risk, the data, how we be able to more proactively to to alert the people, and, uh, and we have all the opportunity. So the left side, right side, you can see there are some application we actually, you know, those are products, you know, from we acquired. However, I put a little, you know, green API there because even they are not in the core CM, the product, we actually bring them in. We want to bring them in. We have all the API connected, you know, tied together. So you actually will see some fantastic demo uh, from a COE team. They're going to do it as smart security. You will see the control center. You will see some travel risk management on the TRM stand from Anvil. So this is really a, a picture and an X matter for sure. Because when we talk about workflow, I will show you a video how we actually extend the workflow capability from X matter side all the way to the physical world. So uh, let's talk about the power of the platform. I already touched base a little bit about the, the API focus strategy. So we have to build in a very strong API layer. This is one of our pathway to platform. Because uh, without the API, you can't really connect all the solutions together. Without API, you cannot expand to our partner ecosystem, right? We actually have a wonderful partner program. Um, you know, we have a, you know, our SVP, DOM, is leading partner. But to be able to really to um, get benefits of partner ecosystem, you have to build in an API you can extend for. Last one is enable customer extensibility. This is important too. Um, so I, I share an example. Um, 
So one of our customer is also a very big high giant, you know, high tech company. Everyone in I think most people is using their device right now. I see a bunch of people, so <laughs> I don't need to name, so you can guess. So um so they've been our customer for many, many years. Um the request they come in this year is well, I want some APIs because you know I want to you know, um, keep our people safe, right, things. But I already have my own apps. I already have my own employee apps. I do not want another app downloading my, you know, um, company. People use it. Can we just, you know, um, give give your data sets, right, the people access to stuff. So we um, we said yes, of course. So we build uh, external APIs to connect with the app to stuff. So those are really some capability. We think the API is really important. So next one, this is I'm super excited because we are launching this in January. And uh, all our CM customer will get these features out of the box. Um, so this is an average flow designer. So, uh, so XMeta, uh, we acquired a company last year. They already have a flow designer um, building in the XMeta offering. But their flow designer obviously is all in the digital IT world. But we extend them right now. We extend them to Everbridge site. So now we really can build a workflow is all the way from physical world to digital world. We'll be able to launch incidents, send communication through all the IT channel. It's all in one stop shop. So this is a low code, no code integration platform. It's home growth, very purpose built. And the good thing is, depends on persona. If you are as a business analyst user, don't need anything technical. There was a lot of pre-built steps. Again, you will see the demo later. You can drag and drop and um, create all your workflow automation. But if you like to write some scripts, you want technical, you can write your custom steps. Even those uh, scripts are super easy to learn. It's just a, a, some simple JavaScript plugin. You can do this. And obviously, we all actually um, provide the enterprise feature, include the runtime logging, permission sharing, and also the entire DRAM cycle. So I'm going to show a really, really quick video, less than one minute. It's eye candy. <laughs> but I want to give everyone a really um, good, uh, you know, kind of a feeling of what is this. You can make all your tools. Automate your action. So this I talk about you can drag and drop from your jewelry box. <laughs> this is all the logging you can see. This part is custom staff to running some simple script. This is how you test the flow. Average flow designer. So um, we are launching this in January. Um, this is just our MVP product, and we will continue to get customer feedback to help enhance. So the other one I want highlighting and on the platform value is on the people resilience side. Um, so we acquired a company, Envil, last year um, to enhance our travel risk management protector. Um, this is a famous screen, probably everyone knows, our visual command center. So if you know right now you are, this is already launched. Uh, if you have, you know, by this, um, you know, travel risk management, you will see the travel, you know, specific, the filter in the risk events on the left channel. 
you can do a lot of reading. We also have a wonderful Rimsey analyst. We overlaying a lot of risk reading, particularly for the travel. Um, so this is how you actually can config pre-trip intelligence in our managed portal. Um, so you can notification the bookings, depends on the risk of the country, um, incident management, and really about in logging all the you know action we take. And we be able to alert right people and the right time. So this is the theme orchestration. Uh, we talk about you know how you in the one place you can filter through the dynamic location. You can customize on the go because you know when when actually those are travel things happening when people are on road you change right how we actually can dynamically send those notifications. Um, so this is super important as our uh, CEO Dave said. People, keep people safe. This is almost every single company, the leadership mindset. Uh, not only the chief security office, CEO all the way, CEO, chief, you know, people office, right? Everybody, you have to keep people safe. And the pandemic changed the entire world. Right now, it's everywhere is mobile. So you no longer have a physical location anymore. Your employee, you can travel working from anywhere, everywhere. <laughs> how do you keep them safe? When the things happening, how we notify them? And executive protection, we talk about all the time, is, you know, and world opening up again. You know, a lot of um, your C-level people starting to travel for business um, around the world. So, again, how we actually make sure they are safe. You know, um, you know, anything happened, we can notify. We actually did some really good work earlier this year when Ukraine war happening. Uh, we actually helped a lot of our global company. They have employees in Ukraine. They're using our product to track the people and to move them to a really, uh, you know, a safe location. So those are all the work we did on the, on the people side. So I'm going to quickly touch the power of the data, you know, of the power of the platform. So we have to build the API to really connect together. Next one is the power of the data, resilience insights. So for us, um, we want to be the market leader on resilience data as physical and the digital both together. We want to multiply, we want to marry them together. Uh, again, we want customer data plus average risk data, and this is all together as a reason insights. Um, so here is a quick solution overview. Um, you know, this is something we have been doing in the last two of months. Um, it is still at early stage, but we are actually feel really good about it. This is the right direction we want to move forward. We're actually going to double down the, the investment. You know, I look at our CEO, our CFO. They, they give me opportunity to double down the data investment because we want to, you know, uh, if you, look, if you, uh, you know, uh, listen to uh, Dave's stats, the power of data, right, how we move the data. So one thing is I'm just going to highlight it again is the historical risk events. So this is our, our secret sauce. No other competitor has it. Um, so now our customer can access at least three years of historical events, but they can access more. You know, it depends on um, how much they want to access. We can give, you know, we can give them all the data they needed. And so we will be able to view all the risk events, alert, action all together um, in this. Um, so this is already available now. Or our CM customer will get this the risk intelligence. So this is the the, the dashboard. Important things for us is. You know, we are, our goal is to provide advanced analytics, but we're also uh, going to provide 
actionable insight. This is very important. Um, when we talk about AI machine learning, you know, everyone talks about AI machine learning, but AI machine learning is the best word, right? For me, it's always important about how you specific apply AI machine learning to a very um, specific customer use, case, use cases. For us, it's a resilience insights. So we've been able to look at through, um, again, you will see live demo later. Uh, so this is just a static, you know, screenshot, but you will see live demo later. How we actually look at back your trend, you know, impact your organization based on different events, risk events, and um, you can even drill down and how they trigger the alerts. So this is another view, tell you what action plan your organization has been taken before. Okay, we can look back. And then what is your organization has been response to this action? So you need to know, as a, if, if you are a security analyst, right, you are in, sitting in the, your, your GSOC rooms, you want to be able to, um, to understand what you have done before and how we actually uh, help you uh, when it's happening again. What is most important steps you should take? Um, so lastly, this is what in beta testing right now, uh, we call the risk exposure index. Um, so we have, a, you know, quite a bit, you know, um, customer in our early adopter program. So they've already been accessed to this. Uh, we ac actually also have a few paying customers too. So this is important is we aggregate all the risks by different, um, uh, different risk event type. And we calculate the score. They tell you, um, you know, for this particularly, we are calculate a, a weather. You know, we look at all your historical data, all the weather impacting your stuff. We calculate the score, and we can tell you how many got impacts, your assets, your people, all those numbers. So those are there's a lot of uh, you know um, data, you know, machine learning models behind the scenes to be able to show this. Yeah. So uh, this is the 2023 product themes, um, you know, um, you can consider it as a very, very high-level product roadmaps. Um, again, I want to reemphasize the focus is on customer value because only we deliver customer value, we can become profitable and we can lead into, you know, um, everything we talk about, right? Product efficiency, you know, customer, you know, love stickiness in our platform and the two path to which platform. So, you know, we want to be able to exceed customer expectation and the business goal. Really, the re oh sorry, <laughs> really the re-emphasize. We want to be know early. We have opportunity to know early. This is the, some part of the predicting part. If we look at our historic data, we put, we be able to know early. We want to respond faster. So this is the action insights because we knew we have done this before. We had experience. We know how to solving problem. So when things happening, you already have the step you know, um, be able to present to you so we don't respond faster. We want to improve it continuously. Everyone knows the feedback loop, right? So we know more, but we, you know, even just from data side, you know, all the data AI machine learning model is to constantly get in feedback from human, human, feedback from customer. Same with our entire product roadmap. We need to get in, input from customer. So we are, you know, we, we already starting to talk about next year, how many customer events what type of custom events we want to be um, you know, held in average so we can constantly get the customer feedback loop to our product. Um, but these are a few themes. Um, business operation, people resilience, I really think those are the product really is to end deliver to end to, end to customer. 
the right side, within the inside workflow automation, this is more like a platform effort behind the scene. All the work we want to do to enable, we can build a fantastic feature to deliver and on the business operation that people are inside. So competency is important. You can see that all the themes, the resilience index, resilience data, we want to be able to apply to all the different solution pillars. You know, people really ask about the customer reports, dashboard, you know, how do they feel, you know, different things. I think that you can see the theme there. Workflow orchestration, this is important. And if we are talking about the one platform, end to end, you gotta have the workflow orchestration. Um, and the, yeah, and then, you know, the other theme, you know, everyone can really is about integration, data, workflow, how we actually um, can help any you know, customers drive their business efficiency, right? Because all the things we want to be, and also help them to um, really look, be able to look at the data. It's very important across data normalization. So this one, we, we you know, somebody asked me about, you know, um, you know, when, when economy is not, not you know, you know, we are into a, you know, the economic change. Now everyone wants to reduce costs. They don't want to use multiple tools. They want one tool. Yes, that's one part aspect. The other part of the aspect is if you can consolidate everything in one tool, you're solving a lot of data problems. Otherwise, we talked to a customer today. They actually have explored the data in three different tools and put in a spreadsheet, right? All playing into their own BI tool to so start doing all the data mining, all the stuff. It would be so wonderful if all the data live through one platform, end-to-end life cycle. So, I have two minutes left, but this is my last slide. <laughs> the summary, uh, you know, uh, like our CEO, Dave, has conclusion, but for me, it's really the summary as, as a product technology leader in average, how I think, you know, my organization can continue to help average to achieve the goal. The first one, drive product innovation to maintain category leadership. So we are a category leader already. But to maintain, we got to continue drug innovation. You know, everyone knows, you know, there is a competitor everywhere. You know, who knows, every other three, com three months, right, we have a, one company stops here, stop there. So I think we always have to drive the product innovation. Second one is building platform capability to deliver holistic resilient solutions. This is really is the way we tie to pathway to platform. We tie to the billion dollar business. And I actually personally believe we have the opportunity, we have the most advantage, you know, compared to all our competitors to really to drive this vision. So there is no one platform right now out there to solving the resilience um, problems. And I think Everbridge will be the one, probably the only one can do this. Um, lastly, it focuses on customer-centric approach to improve the profitability. So there is a research out there you guys can Google search. Deloitte put the research in 2021. They interviewed a lot of different companies. There's data showing customer-centric approach company is 60% more profitable to the company not focused on customer-centric approach. So I really think, you know, for us, it's super, super important. Um, we continue to deliver customer value and building the, building the product. Well, that's all my 30 minutes. I hope it gives, uh, you know, people a lot of good, um, you know, at least ideas, what we're doing here, what, what we have been doing, and how, you know, our plan and strategy go to the one platform. And uh, later, you will see a lot of fantastic live demo um, by our amazing, 
you know, Kakla Excellence team. So that is, I'm handed it to Nanda. Thank you. Yeah. So we're going to go to um, a short break. Uh, there's lunch being served outside. Please bring back your plates. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention at the beginning, uh, we have a Q&A session, a dedicated session at the end. Uh, we're already receiving questions online, uh, but for those of you in the room, uh, please hold your questions at the end because we'll have the whole team up here to address them. Thank you. We'll see you in 15.
Right. Uh, welcome back. So um, you saw some of the platform work that uh, Happy and her team are involved with. Uh, but now we have um, some demos set up. Uh, Vic's team has actually been working really hard on this for several weeks now. So I'll just give you a feel for what the product looks like from a customer's perspective. And then following this, uh, Tracy is going to host a customer panel where they'll tell you their experience using the product. So with that, let me turn it over to Dave, Sean, and Bart. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, we've been looking forward to uh, walk through the critical event management platform and how it delivers on the vision of critical event management. And the overarching theme of this presentation is going to be organizational resilience, which is aligned to the sessions that you've seen earlier today. In terms of layout and format of the demonstration, uh, we're going to cover uh, three distinct functional areas of resiliency. Uh, I will begin walking through key capabilities to deliver resiliency in the digital space in terms of IT operations. Uh, my colleague Sean is also going to walk through uh, product capabilities that address external physical risk, that address business operations and also life safety of uh, employees. And then Sean's also going to cover uh, key capabilities on how we address critical events that occur inside the walls of your facilities. And we're going to focus on three foundational concepts uh, that are important for resiliency, and that is across all of these different areas, uh, how we enable organizations to know about critical events earlier, as well as their business impact, through automation, be able to respond faster, and through AI-driven insights, be able to improve continuously. So as I mentioned, I'll begin on the digital side, and our first stop is going to be showcasing exactly how we allow organizations to know about critical events early. So starting on the IT operations side, I do want to start with the concept of integrated alerts. Now, the reality is in IT, there's decades worth of technology investment from monitoring systems to ticketing platforms, collaboration tools. And this top portion of the alert, same alert I received on my mobile phone via the mobile app, via SMS. Let's make it a little bit bigger here. Uh, it's also viewable directly within the platform. So as delivered on my mobile device, this top section is what we call an incoming signal. And we have hundreds of automation actions across a plethora of IT systems that could ingest data. Now, this top portion is letting me know that something is happening. This is actually a use case that is even realized by some of our mass notification customers today, just letting me know something is happening. But as we dig deeper from a value perspective into the digital operations platform, the first theme I really want to highlight is the concept of signal intelligence. The reality is when there's an issue with an IT service or an application, it's not always apparent if it's an issue with the service itself, the infrastructure that it runs on, or the network that it's connected to. And there's different tools and different teams that manage all of these different areas. So as a technical resolver, I'm actually consolidating and aggregating signals to give me the full extent of not only that something is happening, but why is it happening? What's the root cause and what's the potential impact? So down here in the alert, I actually see from a process perspective, our workflow engine tried to auto-remediate the issue uh, by executing a runbook. In this case, it failed. Otherwise, it would be a pretty brief uh, demonstration. Uh, 
so now I'm going to further enrich that data with diagnostic details from other areas of IT, ranging from infrastructure, maybe this is not isolated to just my application, uh, or in this case, I could actually see, has there been a code change? Uh, in this case, yes, just earlier today, user Greg Smart did commit a change to this inventory order service. And I could confirm without checking other tools or navigating different UIs that this code change is actually live in production. I have my smoking gun. Now, in the, the next concept I really want to showcase quickly is also the concept of service intelligence. IT is pretty complicated, and there's a lot of interdependencies. Services depend on one another. Services depend on infrastructure and networks. So if I'm looking at this order service, I can actually visualize the downstream dependencies, which would give me insights onto the impact should it go down. And I could also see upstream dependencies on, hey, maybe it's an issue with something upstream that's causing uh, problems with my order service. This will help me visualize and be able to really consolidate that triage time to eventually respond faster. Now, before I pass it over to my colleague, Sean, I do also want to highlight uh, the power of collaboration. Now more than ever, uh, in order to communicate effectively, organizations rely on collaboration platforms. And we need to make data available everywhere. So the same alert that I received uh, on my mobile phone that you saw on the platform, I could actually post that to Slack for technical teams, or I could post that to Microsoft Teams in terms of uh, notifying the business of the impact. And on the right-hand side, you can see it's actually updating the thread. So as soon as we tried to execute the runbook, it failed. We actually logged all of that information. Um, so this is absolutely essential to keep everybody in the loop, regardless of what tool they're in. Uh, so with that being said, I will uh, pass it over to my colleague, Sean, to still remain talking about the no capabilities on how we help organizations uh, know about events faster, uh, but now going beyond just IT and taking a look at external uh, physical risks. Awesome. Thanks, Bart. So in the same way that Bart's team is listening to a variety of different digital sources, uh, we need to be able to do the same thing on the physical side of things as well. And the way that we need to think about that is in, in terms of an equation. So when it comes to that equation, we need to think about the things that we care about, which means that we're going to be listening to things like our HRIS system to understand where our contacts are. We're going to be listening to our real estate software to understand where our office locations are. We might be listening to ERPs to understand where plants, suppliers, or shipments might be. We might even start to understand where our supply chain could be as a part of that. Now, in terms of contacts, you'll see that this particular organization that we have pulled up is going to have a fairly global footprint. But I don't need to just know where people are based in terms of their static location. I might not also need to tie into things like our uh, travel management company, something like uh, ECD or Trip Actions or Concur. And so bringing in in real time where people are, and we can see that I've got Allison Becker here who's in Turkey and is going to be flying over on United 221 to Boston. So understanding in real time where people are. Where the things that I care about, whether those be people, places, or things, is that first side of the equation. The other side of the equation is the bad things that are happening around the world. Now, when I turn on our risk events, we'll see this number continue to grow as we bring in open source data, as we connect to things like um, the USGS or the National Weather Service. But we're also listening to 22,000 different data sources that our Risk Intel Monitoring Center is listening to and curating that risk intel so that individuals can take action when necessary. Now, Dave talked, a while, talked about it a little while ago in terms of that path to conversion. 
this is how we see some organizations who are using that, those legacy platforms kind of ingesting and understanding risk intel today. What we, what we found is that they need to go one step further. And the way that we can enable them to grow with Everbridge is by saying, let's not just look at risk events, but let's look at risk events and assets together into what we tar- term as an alert. That's where those two component components come together so that we know when to take action, so that I understand that there is a risk event that's interacting with a thing that I care about. Again, whether that be person, place, or thing. We're going to look at a security breach here at the uh, Philadelphia airport. Uh, An unidentified suspect has gained access to the tarmac at the PHL airport. Uh, You know, they've barricaded themselves near an emergency exit on Terminal B. I've immediately pulled in four different individuals, two of which have active travel at the moment, two of which have travel that's coming up. And so I understand who's going to be impacted. I can now launch an incident communication directly to them. So this is going back to where our customers started with Everbridge, utilizing our mass notification tools. And now they're layering risk intel on top of that. So all of those wonderful templates that they've been used to building, that individuals are used to receiving, we're now going to be able to distribute those directly from a centrified unified command. So I'm going to launch that communication, give me an example of what that will look like, and I'll be able to push that out. We'll see that it's been published directly at the top, and I'll start to get those on my mobile device here momentarily. I'll also get it via Slack or Teams or whatever other modalities organizations are used to utilizing. We'll look at one more example in terms of external risk events. It's been a pretty busy day up here in New York. What we can see is that there's a planned protest. I've got two individuals, Jurgen Klopp and myself, who have now been impacted by this possible uh, example. You can also see that I'm already getting the phone calls, push notifications, text messages from that notification I just launched. I can also see that I've got an office that's been impacted. I can see exactly how many um, employees may work there, what our square footage is, what the exact address is. I can even pull up things like floor plans. But if I caught that right, it looks like Dave's system may have just told us that there's been a badging incident at that office. So now we're taking what happens inside the physical building and passing that over into our GSOC as well. So I'm going to pass it over to Dave at this point to talk about what needs to happen when we get inside that building from a facility perspective. Thank you, Sean. So security operations centers, whether they're regional or global, are often tasked with monitoring thousands, if not tens of thousands, of various devices and sensors within their four walls. Uh, Systems like CCTV, access control, building management, fire, intercom, again, the list goes on and on. All of these systems are disparate in nature, meaning there's no correlation of data, generating thousands and thousands of events per day, hundreds of alarms to respond to. And as an operator, they're tasked with dealing with all these various different systems in different ways without a full understanding of what's going on. The smart security platform can aggregate and integrate all this information into a common operating picture so that they can get full situational awareness to their entire organization, regardless of what that subsystem is. So some example of uh, information you see here on the screen can be uh, video from various CCTV systems. Again, regardless of what that subsystem is, they have a common picture. Being able to visualize all that information on a map, be it GIS mapping, to understand where my offices are, where my, exter- where my external sensors are, internal floor plans and maps to understand where my coverage is, what devices are associated with others, so that when a device does go in alarm, I'm getting provided with the appropriate supporting data from those supporting systems. And you can see there down at the bottom of the map, when alarms do happen, again, be it from external sensors, or in this case, even supplemented from that external risk data, as we can see here from our protest alert in New York, 
we can take those automated actions early, such as elevating my threat posture so that our various systems we're dealing with may act in a certain manner based upon that elevated security event. So with that, as we move on to the respond phase of our platform, I'm going to pass it back to Bart to respond to his uh, digital uh, event there. Excellent. Thank you very much. There we go. Uh, so the next stop on our journey in terms of resiliency is uh, capabilities across all these areas in terms of helping organizations respond faster. With that being said, I'm going to go back to the IT side and highlight yet another concept. So just a minute ago on my phone, um, I did respond to that enriched alert that I received. It's an alert that thanks to the enrichment, I could visually see that's outside of the scope of maybe just what I'm responsible for. Uh, and with the click of a button, I could trigger workflows, uh, which is the concept of response automation, to execute my major incident management process. Uh, so with that, that could automatically execute a number of otherwise manual steps. In this example, it created a ticket in my ITSM platform. We are tool agnostic, so as an example, um, I launched integrated with ServiceNow, uh, but this could just as well be Remedy, Surewell, you know, any uh, ITSM uh, platform. We carried fo forward the enrichment. So even though the major incident management process is handled by potentially a different team, they don't need to rediscover or reinvent the wheel. All of the enrichment we had from the initial detection of the alert carried forward to this team. This is an example of being able to break through a very common challenge, not only in IT, but in organizations overall, which is silos, operational silos and tool silos. Um, so once again, on my phone, I could go ahead and uh, accept and respond. And that will be logged in real time. It could update the ticket. It will update the Slack channel. Everyone will be in the know regardless of what tool they are in uh, to let them know that I have, you know, uh, acknowledged this alert. Now, it's very difficult to talk about responding faster without highlighting the role of automation. So the other concept I want to show on the digital side, and this ties back to Happy's presentation in terms of the Everbridge flow designer. Um, well, let's talk about the digital operations uh, flow designer that is powered by our X Matters platform. This is already a benefit that a lot of our digital operations customers benefit from today, which is integrating with IT tools and systems. So that alert that I received earlier in this demonstration, this is the execution path. And using a drag and drop uh, interface, I was able to automate workflows that are process centric not just tool-centric, because tools, tools come and go. But if you could automate a process, you could easily swap the tools out um, as they inevitably change. So here we have incoming signals from a monitoring system. We post it to Slack. We post it to Teams. We try to automatically restart the service. We log that attempt in JIRA, so you shouldn't be, we can't be you know, restarting services willy-nilly. Uh, we then updated the status, enriched the alert, and that was the byproduct of that alert. There was a ton of automation that actually happened before I even received that notification that saved me as a technical resolver a lot of time that would be otherwise all manually triaged. Now, this is the response automation as well. Uh, I clicked on the initiate incident. It will also create a dedicated technical channel in Slack for this incident, uh, automate communications to business leaders via MS Teams to triage the impact and actually initiate that incident in the ticketing system. And as important as it is to have data available everywhere, 
Uh, we also do strongly believe that for an incident commander, it is very important to have everything in one place. So there's that automated incident that got created by my response. And here, if I'm an incident commander, I have everything I need in one screen. The details of the incident. The service intelligence is embedded, so it's situational now. In regards to this incident to my order service, I could visualize those dependencies thanks to that service intelligence I showcased in the note. The platform is even automatically highlighting what the potential root cause may be based on the dependencies and, and data that we have inside our platform. To expedite response, customers that are you know, uh, far down the maturity uh, index, they could even execute service-centric automations from the screen as well, leveraging technology they already have. One of the themes that you see here when we look at Flow Designer is actually extending the value of current investments to make them work uh, more efficiently. The other thing is we could view changes. Uh, depending on which study you read, up to 70% of IT incidents is related to some sort of change. Well, it's actually be able to visualize them on the screen to see what those changes are uh, to help me really better understand exactly what's going on. And when we talk about the journey some of our customers have, uh, before I transition to Sean, I do also want to highlight service-centric automations. So these could be very technical, but they could also be business process related. So maybe this digital service is responsible for directly uh, delivering customer value. Maybe I need to engage my customer success team. Or in this example, I'm going to showcase how we launch a critical event. Whether I'm a healthcare organization that's relying on my electronic medical record system to deliver safe and effective patient care, whether I am a major retailer that relies on my online store presence and e-commerce to generate millions of dollars of revenue. Or since I have an issue with an order service, maybe in this example, I'm a logistics company. And this order service being impacted is now disrupting my supply chain. So in order to unify my response beyond just IT, I could actually launch a cross-functional critical event that will engage other areas of the business. So in this case, I will launch this uh, critical event, and Sean, who may be responsible for overall business continuity, will now see this critical event as I transition to you, Sean, uh, for the business operations piece. Awesome. Thanks, Bart. So what starts as a digital operations issue, right, starts with an application outage, has now transformed itself into something that's going to affect our business and our supply chain. So what we've been able to do is start to say, all right, let's pass that information over into the visual command center, and it immediately pulls up an application outage in terms of uh, our IT issues and our supply chain. It calls out what supply chain uh, pieces are going to be impacted. It's my Texas City, Texas hub, that 35, 36 different components are going to be impacted. So it immediately passed that information over, breaking down those data silos. If I drill down into that application outage, it's going to have already started my uh, risk mitigation process. It launched a variety of different task lists for me so that I can see what steps I need to take either as a team member or as an individual in order to get us back up and running faster. It ties in the incident communications, again, going back to what Dave talked about at the beginning of the day, layering in things on top of mass notification, that traditional emergency notification usage is now going to be tied into a business operations supply chain use case. But it all ties back to an alert that originated within uh, digital operations and has now been passed over. 
whether or not I'd be sitting in front of my computer utilizing my laptop to respond to this, or if I'm on my mobile device, I'm getting that call to action so that I know what I need to do in order to get us back up and running. But not every situation is created equal. I don't think that's surprising to anybody. This is obviously a very large-scale issue, so what we might want to do is go back and start to uh, manage a situation like we were talking about before when it came to those planned protests in downtown Manhattan. So what we'll see here is another reason that organizations start to want to move away from the Anvil platforms or the Risk Center 9 platforms and migrate towards a unified central command is because of the contextual items we layer on top of the risk events that are taking place. Some of those might be super simple, things like weather forecasts, right? If it's going to rain, protest is probably not going to be that big. But I might also want to say, you know what, I want to understand traffic conditions. Do we have road closures? What other things do we have happening? It looks like we've actually just had another protest start to originate. So I might want to keep eyes on what's taking place. I can do that by accessing real-time traffic cameras. So now I can see if the protest is growing. Is the protesting moving towards the building? Is there a counter-protest growing? Because we know if that's what occurs, that's when things start to get violent. So if we see that and we continue to layer on that additional functionality, I'll be able to say, this is what I need to do. So in this case... I might say, you know what, Dave, this is getting pretty bad. I need you to lock down the building. I need you to turn off card access. I need you to do the steps that you need to. So can you go ahead and start to take that over from a facility side? Absolutely, Sean. Thank you. So as we talk about now that that protest started, uh, some some things happening around the area, now it's starting to to affect my inside my four walls now, in this case, my Times Square office. So as shown earlier, now that we're, we're aggregating all of these internal sensors into the common operating picture, I see not only that information regarding the protest that's happening near my office, but now I'm getting an alert from my access control system that let me know uh, that somebody forced that door open at that particular office. So now as a regional or global security operations center, I may not be intimately familiar with that office, what systems are in use there, the floor plans, etc. So as I respond to that particular event, the smart security platform will present all the supporting information to me aggregated together so that I have full, complete awareness of what's going on to not only include data of the alarm from the access control system, but also the appropriate supporting cameras, regardless of the underlying CCTV system, as many organizations have multiple systems uh, deployed globally. In addition to a floor plan to understand where things are happening, I'm able to bi-directionally communicate with those sensors, such as doors, PA systems, etc., as well as the digitized and approved standard operating procedure that the operator can follow so that you get an efficient and accurate response, regardless if it's that operator's first day on the job or if they've been there for 10 years. So as as I walk through these steps here and confirm various details, such is there a security incident, do I need a dispatch security patrol to investigate? Again, now we can start communicating out, so leveraging that Everbridge mass notification system and populating the uh, information required from, again, my digitized templates. So now I can start sending those notifications out to the appropriate people in the appropriate location to let them know what's going on as I continue to keep eyes on that event. And uh, I walk through the other various steps, such as dispatching security patrol, uh, identifying whether there's a safety threat, contacting police. And as I do so, I can also take the appropriate site responses on site. So whether or not I need to lock down the site again from the access control system, do I need to send that shelter-in-place notice over the PA system? Uh, once, every, once everything's done, do I send that all-clear notice uh, to the, uh, through the PA system as well? All of this is done through 
an interface that the operator understands regardless of that subsystem or uh, where in the world that location may be. So as I walk through the rest of my standard operating procedure here and continue to resolve the event, you see the alarm itself has been cleared from the queue and I can pass it back to BART to show how we can uh, continue to improve from uh, the information gathered as part of our various events. Excellent, thank you Dave. Uh, so now we're gonna go into the, the third and last stop of showcasing capabilities across all these different areas. And I wanna highlight the fact that resiliency really is a journey. Uh, so now let's take a look at some capabilities that empower our customers not to only do well when they're uh, dealing with a critical event, but continuously improve to continuously uh, become more resilient. So I want to go back to the adaptive incident console to our you know, incident that's in progress. And I want to call attention to this area up in the top that says insights. Now, in order to get consistency uh, and be able to respond uh, quickly every time, I like to think of these insights as a digital wingman for my technology teams. By taking data from previous incidents that are similar, we could perform actions such as recommending a particular resolver or a particular team that last time addressed this particular issue. This could also include automations that were executed and recommend executing those. So whether I'm uh, the on-call person or a colleague of mine, we could still have the same standard operating procedures to resolve this issue faster. So these insights build over time. The more incidents and the more usage we have on the platform, the more refined and robust these insights become uh, in terms of bolstering my response. The other area I want to take a look at is post-mortem activity. This is a very time-consuming process for IT organizations today because it's so cross-functional. And all these teams are typically siloed within their own technologies. So when an incident's resolved, the first uh, benefit that customers receive is metrics. Uh, metrics not only about what data exists in a ticketing platform or monitoring tool, but how are we responding? What is that time to acknowledge? What is my impact duration? What automations were executed? What was the issue? What were my impacted services? And a running timeline of everything that happened across all of my tool sets driven by our flow designer. One of the automations here is as soon as the incident's resolved, we actually grabbed the chat history from Teams and for Slack so we could retain it after the fact. Um, so we could look into that data as needed. And it's important to also make sure that when we're resolving issues, we're resolving them for good. Uh, we don't want the same issue to rekindle in a week or a month or in a quarter uh, and disrupt the business or customer value once again. So this is a consolidated view that allows us to uh, capture even cross-functional elements such as impact, root cause, what was the resolution and problem, which then can be carried forward and fed into our AI engine as additional insights the next time this incident occurs. But we could also assign action items that are also often cross-functional and housed in many different tools. Let's all put them in one area so because they are critical to improving our digital resiliency. So what tasks need to be performed to make sure that this issue doesn't happen again, even though it's currently under control and mitigated. Um, so with that being said, I want to pass it back over to Sean to showcase some of the insights that are available uh, on the physical side when dealing with risk events. 
And when it comes to physical risk events and, and that risk intel, what we've seen is even in, you know, for GSOCs, um, you know, something that is generally individuals sitting shoulder to shoulder with one another, uh, that doesn't apply in a hybrid workforce anymore. So what we'll see is that we need to have the ability to share dashboards, um, whether they be individuals that are, you know, again, sitting on their laptop or working remotely, we need to be able to share this both on a mobile device, uh, but they also need to be configurable. So to make sure that individuals are operating off of the same set of data so that when we initiate a standard operating procedure, when we initiate a business continuity plan, we have the same data and facts so that we are going to be able to improve and respond faster. Uh, another example of something like this would be actually taking a step back and looking backwards in time. I know it sounds a little uh, counterintuitive to look back in time to be more proactive, but as Happy mentioned, we're collecting 18 years worth of risk intel. If I can leverage that intel and say, how can this help me make smarter decisions when it comes to where I'm going to host events, what suppliers I'm going to work with, what vendors I'm going to work with, I'm now going to be able to say, let's look at the last six months, the last three years, the last five years, ten years. What sources do I want to pay attention to? What categories do I want to pay attention to? What severity do I need to understand? So now that I can see here in D.C. where hotspots on different things are actually taking place, if I drill down into those, it's going to give me a snapshot on what's actually happening in that particular area. So now I can say from a business standpoint, that's not a vendor I should be working with. They constantly are interrupted by protests. Or if we think about climate change, they're having a lot of additional flooding in that particular area. I need to think about a different manufacturing center. And then the last component goes more towards that AI stuff that Happy talked about. Starting to collaborate and understand all of the different risk events, all of the different data points in one central area so that we can drive analysis on those components. Whether that be what's actually taking place and what those categories are, how we're responding to alerts, how quickly we are responding to those, what our team's working on, what that response looks like from the field, right? What is our field telling us? when these events happen, or when it's looking at resilience index, providing me an enterprise-wide risk score. Or I could dive into specific buildings saying, hey, this specific site has issues when it comes to flooding or civil unrest. So I'll pass it over to Dave so we can talk to us about what happens in terms of improving inside those four walls. Thank you, Sean. So as far as analyzing and improving upon your security operations, it really falls into two categories. Uh, how do we handle those individual events then from a more macro or organizational level, how are we doing as a whole as a company across our various systems? So the first example here is, is an example of, of an alarm report uh, similar to what I responded to earlier, that door forced, uh, forced open event. You can see here that we can summarize and, and easily format all of that data to understand what happened, uh, where it happened, the time to resolution, and all of the other supporting data to include video, any supporting imagery as part of that, but also understanding the various steps the operator took as part of that. So to understand the time of resolution, how long did it take uh, myself to resolve that particular alarm? The system captured an SLA elapsed, meaning uh, we've broken a service level agreement to respond to these sort of events. So why, why did it take me too long to respond to the event? Is it a lack of training? Is it uh, being understaffed? Is it a misconfiguration of your systems? All of this can provide a lot of uh, insight based on a, an individual event itself. Now, as you look at, again, more of the organization-wide, uh, organization you can see here, now that we're aggregating and collecting the various event data from those subsystems, we can now provide those aggregated dashboards to give us an understanding of what's happening across my organization. So now, again, all of these various systems on their own create their own reports and sets of data, but now in this aggregated, this aggregated view, we now understand where things are happening, what types of, of alarms are happening on a particular day or week, 
What are those resolution types? Why am I getting so many false alarms from various systems? I can then drill down and understand where those problem areas are. Do I need to, to uh, send up repairmen or change just policies in general? Um, understand my active points. Uh, times of day to understand staffing again. Do we need to uh, add a person to the GSOC for, to monitor these alarms? Do I need to remove one or shift one? Um, again, having that understanding across all of your functional security systems helps you understand you know, your organization as a whole because as you learn how to respond better, you not only, of course, seconds matter when it comes to those security events, but from an operation standpoint to be more efficient in those responses and you know, really understanding how your organization works as a whole is uh, beneficial, of course, from, a, from an investment standpoint. And to just kind of wrap things up here, I'm going to pass it back to Bart for just a, just a few closing remarks. Yep, excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Dave. I know we have a customer panel coming up, so I'll keep this pretty crisp. But just to summarize uh, some of the key themes here, uh, the reality is that it's a chaotic world out there that impacts organizations. And risk could come from many different areas. And there's often different teams with different purpose-built tools to address all of these various types of risks. So what I want to also showcase is the fact that some our customers start on the left. Some start on the right, some start in the middle. But throughout this demonstration, one of the powers of our platform is being able to unify response across these three functional areas as we discussed. And hopefully, uh, we showed some uh, pretty impressive capabilities in each one of these areas. It's also important that really consolidating everything on one platform eliminates those silos as well. And we saw that with the escalation of the IT event to a business crisis or a protest to engage physical security. Um, and all of this is in order to deliver on our mission to help organizations know about risks earlier, respond faster, and improve continuously. Um, and thank you very much for your time. And that concludes the demo. All right, thank you guys. That was a great demo. So uh, now on to our customer panel. Uh, Tracy Reinhold, um, our Chief Security Officer, will be moderating the panel. Uh, and uh, Tracy himself is a former FBI Special Agent, so he sees things from a very different lens than you and I do. So with that, um, let me welcome Tracy up. If you've, if you've learned nothing else today, uh, resilience. So there were supposed to be four of us. There are not. There are supposed to be five of us. Now there's four of us. Sorry, marine math. Stay with me. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, so I want to introduce the panel that we have. Suleiman was supposed to be here today, but he's actually actively engaged using our platform right now in Loudoun County. They're having a bit of a crisis out there today. So he texted me and said that he wasn't going to be able to make it. So what we have is Jeff Fletcher. Jeff, you want to step up? Jeff is from Fairfax County. Yep, reverse that. Reverse Suleiman. that. Suleiman's, Suleiman's from Fairfax. Fairfax. I'm Loudon. Yep, we're right next to each other. <clears throat> All right. So um, Ken, Ken Moore from Bristol Myers Squibb, and Matt Siegel from SCN. So for those of you that obviously the county and Bristol Myers Squibb are well known, but have a seat, gents. Uh, I'm going to stand because I want you to focus on them and not on me. Um, so, so here's how we're going to work this. So, Matt, maybe can you share with the audience what SCN is, what the mission is, and why you're doing that, maybe why you chose Everbridge? Absolutely happy to. Um, thanks for having us here. And SCN is Secure Community Network. 
We are a nonprofit, and we are the official safety and security organization of the Jewish community in North America. So our charge is um, pr providing safety uh, services to Jewish federations um, and other parts of the Jewish community across North America. Um, where I come in is in my uh, position as Assistant Deputy Director of Operations Command and Coordination. I oversee our JSOC, or uh, Jewish Security Operations Command Center, which is based in our headquarters. Um, in there, we use Everbridge um, very extensively to track over 12,000 assets um, using the Visual Command Center, um, and those range from synagogues, JCCs, offices, uh, cultural sites like Holocaust museums and um, other things like cemeteries. And we use the um, RIMC alerting um, on a daily, really hourly or half-hourly basis to keep track of everything going on around there, as well as using mass notification across our community. We have over 16,000 contacts in um, the mass notification system. And in addition to having um, the ability to operate that from within the JSOC, our security directors that are embedded in the federations around the country are given their, their own groups, um, their own administrative areas within mass notification to be able to directly reach out to their uh, communities when necessary. So you heard the demo team talk about the criticality of identifying assets, right? It's hard to protect what you don't know you have. So one of the things that Matt has done is use the platform to help identify the location of all of the assets that his organization is responsible for protecting. Um, it's, as you know, this is a heightened issue in today's society, and the team at, that Matt leads has done a fantastic job in protecting the Jewish community across the country. But first you had to identify where all those were. Right? So maybe talk a little bit about how you use the platform to geolocate. So that, that was um, quite, a, quite a lift, to say the least, um, but something we had to do pretty rapidly because um, we are in the most complex and dynamic threat environment that we've ever seen and have been for the past couple of years. Um, so we use both information from our security director network um, as well as um, – the contextual and um, alerting information in the VCC to identify those locations, make sure they're mapped, and then it was a matter of fine-tuning the geofencing and alerting, which we continue to do with new things like um, CM orchestration and CAMs that you've rolled out, um, all of which have reduced our time to um, receive an alert and notify the proper security director or law enforcement to generally under five minutes for each one of those steps. Um, and that's working with a very small um, open source intelligence team, usually no more than um, four or five people on duty at a time. Okay, great. So, Ken, you are the director of security or senior director of corporate security for Bristol-Myers Squibb up in New Jersey. That's correct. Um, as we know, uh, BMS is a global company. It is. Um, maybe talk a little bit about your role and about the GROC that you, you have on your team. Sure. First of all, thank you for inviting me to participate today. As Tracy mentioned, my name is Kenneth Moore, and I'm the Senior Director for Corporate Security with Bristol-Myers Squibb. As such, I'm responsible for our Physical Security Center of Expertise and our Duty of Care programs, which include travel security, meeting security, executive protection, and I have overall responsibility for our Global Response and Operations Center as well. Um, to respond to your question, Tracy, let me go back about five years. How did we get to this point? How did we become a partner with Everbridge? Uh, as many of you will recall, five years ago, Hurricane Maria devastated the island of Puerto Rico. We have three sites on that island in Umacao, 
uh, Manatee, and Guanabo. And we also have sites that were impacted in the U.S. in Tampa. But when Hurricane Maria occurred, we quickly realized that we did not have the capacity or the capability of reaching out to all of our employees who were impacted by that, that hurricane. It was a watershed moment for us, and it caused us to take a step back and assess our posture for duty of care. We quickly realized that the system that we were using at the time did not have the flexibility, did not have the capability from a language translation standpoint, considering Puerto Rico is a Spanish-speaking uh, island. We couldn't communicate very quickly with our employees as well. In fact, in order for us to create a message in Spanish, we were dependent on one of our communication specialists in the Global Response and Operations Center to actually translate the message. And for those of you who don't know, there's Puerto Rican Spanish and there's Spanish, if you will. So you have to make sure that you get that part of that nuance right as well. And the system we were using just could not do that. So we started our, our search, if you will, at that point, looking for a partner. And I use that word because that's how we see Everbridge as a partner with us, not a vendor, but a partner looking for a partner that would be able to integrate all of the systems that we were then using from access control to our CCTV platform, our, man, our visitor management platform, et cetera. And initially it was to replace the mass notification module, if you will. But once we started our due diligence, had a few meetings with Everbridge, we quickly realized that they had a product that would be or that represented a quantum leap opportunity for us. Uh, to take our duty of care program to the next level, without a doubt. And so uh, we settled on Everbridge about two and a half years ago. We currently have over 50,000 of our employees and contractors in the system. We also have about 172 sites that we have uh, the geo addresses in the system. We also have our supply chain routes included in the system. And we also are using, you know, the VCC module on a daily basis, not only for life safety and security, but we're also using the mass notification system in support of our facilities operations at Bristol-Myers-Squibb as well, because we have about 15 sites that report directly into the Global Response and Operations Center, and so we use mass notification with facilities uh, for that purpose. So I think it's interesting that one of the things that Ken mentioned was including his supply chain roots. So that goes back to the core mission of establishing, maintaining, and growing the resilience of a company. So it's not just duty of care. It's not just physical security. It's also about maintaining business operations so that the company thrives, recovers from disruptions quickly, and returns to revenue faster. So, Jeff, one of the things that – so both of these folks are on the private or pseudo-private side, either an NGO or uh, on the private sector. But we also have a fairly significant presence in the public sector. So I've asked Jeff to join us today to talk about how the county – first of all, how they selected it, what your role is, and then how you use the system on a daily basis. Yeah, great. Our, uh, <clears throat> our global reach is about 520 square miles just west of here. Um, we have a population in Loudoun of about, uh, about 430,000 people. When I started with, the, to give you an idea of growth, when I started with the county 31 years ago, there were 85,000 residents. 
So we've had a bit of rapid growth over the years. Um, the, we are kind of the data center capital of the world, <laughs> seems like. 72% uh, of all uh, worldwide Internet traffic travels through Loudoun County. So it's great for our tax base, um, but <clears throat> what it brings is a highly educated population uh, with a set of service demands that are slightly different than they used to be, say, 30 or 40 years ago from our community, which is not a bad thing. But uh, Loudoun got, uh, got its start in 2014. We are a member of the National Capital Region, uh, which is uh, several jurisdictions in Maryland, the District of Columbia, and all of Northern Virginia. Um, and we went forward uh, in search of a communications platform uh, for notification uh, back in 2013. It was awarded to Everbridge. They replaced an incumbent system um, in 2014. So we've all been on it since then. Uh, since then, Loudon has become its own uh, customer outside of our contract um, with different features that we've decided that were, were good for us. Um, <clears throat> we use it. We're, we're primarily a mass notification uh, user of the system. Um, we have a robust internal system with our 3,500 to 4,000 employees, which is, I feel a little we saying that in front of these guys, but um, uh, we utilize it uh, for all manner of uh, both urgent and routine communication with our workforce. But primarily, you know, the difference between uh, us is we have an obligation to keep our 430,000 citizens safe. And so that's our primary usage. And while some jurisdictions in the region have opted to use it only for emergency notifications with their public, Loudoun took the approach of we're going to leverage everything that comes our way. So we use it certainly for emergencies. It is our um, platform that we use to um, access the um, IPAWS system, um, which is the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System. That's what allows me to interrupt your favorite cable television show or make your phone go off while you're standing in line at Costco. Um, but we've used Everbridge for that. We maintain our community voice notification system where even if you, you don't have to subscribe, we know who you are, where you are, and what your phone number is. So something geographically goes on. We draw a polygon and we notify every single phone within that polygon of important life safety information. But in addition to that, we've used it, like I said, since 2014, you want to sign up and get an alert if your voting precinct changes or it's time for you to pay your taxes or you want to know what's new with county headlines. You can do that if you want uh, non-urgent information from the sheriff's office. There's probably uh, 30 different options, and we share that within Loudoun County. We have seven incorporated towns. So we share this system with them so that they can send out information 
for folks who sign up to uh, to get information specific to their to their little town. Good, thanks. So I think that puts a different spin on duty of care. You think about it. So especially post-pandemic, when a lot of people are working from home or working from anywhere, uh, the idea of having the county have that capability to identify potential issues that could disrupt the citizenry is really important. It's sort of a microcosm of public warning when you think about it from the whole country perspective. Um, the 535 square miles that is Loudoun County, and having spent a lot of time in this area, it is also it's a very affluent county and it's a very influential county. So high demand customers. Um, that require or a lot from the county, and I'm just happy that we're able to help you with that. So, so Matt, I want to come back to you. There, there's nothing that drives home the viability of a platform than specific examples of how you might have used our platform to protect the Jewish community. So do you have an example that you can share? Absolutely, and um, it's one of many, but um, as many people may remember, January 15th of this year, um, through one of our other uh, news aggregation platforms that we have API'd into the VCC. Um, in the morning, we got an alert about unspecified police activity in Colleyville, Texas. Thanks to having that tied into the VCC, we were able to see that one of our assets, Congregation Beth Israel, was 0.0 kilometers away from this unspecified police activity. Um, that obviously triggered our team to know that we need to look into what's going on there. We were able to contact our local security and law enforcement contacts and find out that was the um, hostage situation going on at Congregation Beth Israel. Um, throughout the day there, in addition to um, having our own resources on the ground with the FBI and local law enforcement, because we had conducted training there, we had knowledge of the, the facility, we used the platform here initially to notify our incident management team. Um, we, we launched an incident through mass notification through using the mobile app, which allowed us to also launch the secure mobile chat with our IMT and start collaborating, even though the office was closed, people were spread out all over the place, and we hadn't yet sent our team back into the JSOC. Um, the great thing about that was we were able to share attachments, keep real-time updates as we got more information coming in, um, and then when we were ready to do our after-action report, we also had that full transcript. Um, throughout the day, we used mass notification first to notify the security director network and our law enforcement partners of a incident briefing we were going to do in the morning um, to let people know what the current situation was and um, where we thought things were going to go. Um, I remember initially that was live streamed on Facebook. Um, the, the quickness um, that we were alerted through the platform um, let our, our team find that stream before it was taken down to get you know, some additional intelligence on what was actually going on in the room there. Um, once uh, the situation was proving to be a, a more protracted situation. We used the system to uh, notify all 16,000 contacts that we had across the community with a situation report um, because we were getting numerous calls pretty much constantly from people wanting to know what's going on, whether it was just because they knew someone in the area, they were concerned, is this part of a multi-prong attack or multi-location attack, or they're just curious and concerned. So we were able to launch a situation report um, about midday on what was going on to help um, people under, you know, make it clear that this was an isolated incident. Um, and we did the same thing in the evening once the situation had been resolved, when the um, congregants were able to, to rescue themselves um, and the, the hostage rescue team was able to um, neutralize the, the suspect. Um, so throughout the day, 
we use the system constantly. Um, in addition to those other use cases, we're also monitoring everything else going on around the area and around our other assets because we also could not confirm until later in the day that this was a, a lone actor. So, so Matt, you, you did mention too about um, the analysis that's prepared by the system. So let's talk a little bit about your after action how you use that information to help you with it. Because the, the demo team talked about continuous improvement, which is important. So, so part of any critical event management or any crisis action is, what did we do right, what did we do wrong, and how can we get better at what we do? So let's talk about a little bit about your post or your post-mortem, your after action, your hot wash, whatever you want to call it. Um, let's talk about how, how you did that and how you leveraged that intelligence from the platform to do that. Sure. Um, and we, we have hot wash and an after action. Um, you know, in the hot wash, it was more um, just a, a discussion with, with the um, incident management team on how well everything worked and being able to have that information there and knowing that it was all stored. Um, it really came in handy building out the actual after action report. We had the full transcript. We could see when our incident commander asked for specific things done because it was time stamped already. We could see when any media was shared and it was still saved in there. Um, from the various mass notifications since we sent out, we, we had the time they were sent out, we had the actual text and um, you know, the custom branded emails and notifications that we could still use. And then we also had an amazing amount of data on how those um, mass notification incidents worked with the community, how, how the engagement was, how many people confirmed, what methods were successful, um, and it even allowed us to kind of vet what our contacts really looked like, how many had somehow ended up as bad contacts because phone numbers had changed or whoever put them in is wrong because we reserve the system for strictly safety and security use and even more so at the national level. Um, this is in three years I've been there, Calgo was the second time we ever used it nationally um, at once. So it gave us an opportunity to look at the contacts as a whole having all received um, an incident and see where, where holes needed to be fixed, where contacts need to be updated, and then in addition to adding that to the after action report, work with the security directors to make sure that information was there. So it really gave us all the metrics on everything we did throughout the day um, that we were able to pull it together very quickly and sped up uh, the production of that report. Great. Thanks, Matt. So, Ken, so Matt is a nationally focused NGO, for lack of a better term. You are a multinational uh, global corporation. Let's talk about how, first of all, an example, and then I want you to elaborate a little bit on how you take care of duty of care with a hybrid workforce. Okay. Uh, excellent question, uh, Tracy. In terms of the use of the system, uh, there are a number of incidents that occur daily where we have to use the system, whether it's uh, geopolitical, for example, issues that may be occurring in Brazil, issues like last week in Peru, or weather-related issues are here domestically within the United States, protest activities as well. For example, a couple of years ago when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the first things that occurred, of course, was all of the protest activity and the violence that, that followed that. The leadership team quickly wanted to know how many of our employees were in that area and if they were potentially going to be impacted by the violence by the protest, et cetera. We were able to provide that information from the system within a, within a very short period of time, probably about three minutes, to draw a polygon around that area and identify not only the employees who lived in that area, but also any travelers who might be there as well so that we could provide notification to them. 
while at the same time pushing that information up to the senior leadership team to make decisions on whether or not business could continue as usual in that area with our sales force or if they needed to curtail that for a limited period of time. Uh, there are so many examples I could draw from. Uh, again, just a couple of weeks ago with the most recent tropical storm uh, that came through the Tampa area, because of Everbridge's flexibility, we were able to ingest not just telephone numbers for our employees, but also all of their physical addresses, which was crucial during the most recent tropical storm and the hurricane because, to your point about a remote workforce, we had individuals in that area who were assigned to other locations, but because we had their physical addresses in the system as well, when we drew the polygon around the, the, the path of the tropical storm, it captured their information as well. We were able to reach out to them and include them uh, with the information and guidance from the leadership team as well. But the w remote workforce is a new phenomenon, if you will. Thank you, COVID, if you will. But we have to address that. We have to be prepared to provide that type of guidance to our workforce who's no longer sitting within our sites. But because of that, we were able to go to our legal team, and from a duty of care standpoint, we need this information. Can you approve for us to receive this on a daily basis so our system is updated so that we can protect our workforce? And it worked. So, so you talked a little bit. Matt talked about identifying and notifying 16,000 contacts about potential disruptions. But also from a corporate perspective, how important is it to be able to notify the C-suite, yes. your crisis team, and your impacted employees all at one time. Critical. Critical. So what happens if you don't do that? If you don't, <laughs> if you don't tell the C-suite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's not going to be a very good day for me and my team. Uh, but thankfully, my C-suite has been extremely supportive of all of our efforts in terms of acquiring Everbridge as our partner and making uh, enhancements to it as well. In fact, I was here just last week as part of the product meeting, and based on information that I learned there, we have a follow-up meeting scheduled in January for the travel protector that we're going to look at because it appears to be uh, an upgrade from what we're currently using. And I have no doubt that based on what the C-suite has seen over the last two years from our use of Everbridge, that they will continue to be uh, supportive of our enhancements. Great. It's just great to have one platform with mm -hmm. all of our systems integrated into that because right. it saves time. You don't have someone, communication specialist, having to check two, three, four different platforms mm -hmm. before making the decision. So I would imagine, so in full transparency, I was a customer before I became an employee. Uh, so some of my questions I already know the answer to. Sorry about that. But it's also about vendor management. Right, about how do we consolidate vendor management because with disparate systems it becomes more complicated to respond during a crisis. So you talked a little bit about you know, a single hand to shake. Yes. Um, do you find that beneficial? Oh, absolutely, because otherwise think about the level or the amount of training that your communication specialist would have to go through just to stay up to date on each one of those other systems. And when you're in a crisis situation, you don't have time to waste. You need them to be able to act immediately. That's why I like the previous presenters. Know, respond, improve. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. 
So, so Jeff, from a, a county perspective, is there a specific incident? So for those of you that are not from D.C., if, if we talk about snow in D.C., the traffic stops. Um, if it rains, the traffic stops. If it's windy, the traffic stops. So you well, they're s- calling for sleep yeah, I know, I tomorrow, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'm pretty sure schools will close any minute. <laughs> but, but you talked about using that for routine communications as well. Yeah. I'm assuming that's part of what the system is used for to inform the, the citizens of the county? Absolutely. We have an entire suite of weather-related alerts they can sign up for, and there's, you know, that's directly from the National Weather Service. They're, they're not waiting on Jeff to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning to resend a tornado warning. Um, the other thing, you know, I wanted to touch on real quick with what little bit of time we have left is a feature that we used um, with a great deal of success during our COVID response. And we did this probably within the second week. We opened up our emergency operations center on March 16th of 2020. Um, and by that next week, we already had in place, we use a feature called uh, community engagement which allows people to access the system without going through signing up and creating a password and having an account and all that mess. Our, our citizens are not really interested in all that. They want the information that they want when they want it, which is fine. Uh, they've made that very clear to us, it's, so it's easy for us to try to follow through with that. Um, we came up with a COVID keyword and we strived early on in that event through all that fog of war. We tried very early on to make ourselves, the county, be a trusted source of information. So part of that was getting out information on a regular basis. So we created a keyword. And within about two weeks, we were in 10% of our households in the county. And that's, if you're wondering if that's good, that's, that's damn good. Um, so we became, you know, that let us be that trusted source of information for people. And then we created additional trusted, uh, agents within other demographics that we're having a hard time to, uh, infiltrate, if you will, that's the wrong word, but to get into, um, and they were sharing that information, amplifying that message. So we sent you know, one update a day unless there was something brand new like we were opening up a vaccine center or something like that. But uh, we got a lot of uh, our citizens were very appreciative of that. And when it was all done or they didn't, you know, last month, you know, probably when they stopped caring about it, they they just, you know, hit stop and it's all done for them. Right. So, so I, I think what you've seen here today is whether you're a nonprofit, whether you're a corporate entity, or whether you're a municipality. Um, so Happy and her team with innovation, constantly looking for ways that we can improve the life quality of our customers, and I think it's important. So, gentlemen, I want to thank you for the time today. I want to tell you how much we appreciate you making the trip in for this. Um, and I know there's a break after this, so if, the, if you want to chat with them during the break, that we are more than welcome to do that. I'm done. A short 10-minute uh, break, and then we'll come back, and uh, Patrick will present the financial roadmap.
Right. Uh, welcome back. Uh, we have our final module before we go to Q&A. So Patrick Brickley, our CFO, is going to walk you through our financial uh, basically operationalizing what they've talked about in the first uh, section today. So, Patrick. Great. Thanks. Sorry to take you away from our customers. I know that we love talking to them. Um, thank you again, everyone. We're on the home stretch here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for participating. Thanks for joining online. Uh, for those of you whom I haven't been able to meet yet, I'm Patrick Brickley. I am our chief financial officer. I've been at Everbridge since 2015, pre-IPO. It's been great to be a part of building the business to where we are today and very excited about the days ahead. I've got three topics to take you through today. The first is a quick update on where we are on 2022 and the progress that we've made. The second is, as you know, we've already guided for 2023, but I'll double click on that guidance, top line and bottom line in this meeting. And the third is looking forward to ARR, which is a new metric by which we're running the business as well as our long-term model. So first, starting with 2022, it's been quite a year. We entered with a fair amount of turbulence, number of question marks, uh, but nevertheless, we, along with the board, we set for ourselves a number of really important initiatives to, to get after throughout the year, simplifying our business, improving our profitability, pausing material new M&A and focusing on integrating what we had already acquired and meeting and beating expectations along the way. And we are doing that and we've done that. And I'll, I'll click through each of these, but we are uh, achieving greater stability. We are exiting 2022 with much more stability than we came into the year. We're very excited about the outlook. So first, simplifying the business we've made it much easier for our sellers and for our customers to get onto a path to critical event management. We used to have a few dozen offerings. We'd say, you know, choose from among them. Now we've got persona-based packages that are tiered that make it much easier for our customers to see the path to critical event management, which is a really important part of getting to that $1 billion of, of ARR snowball that Dave spoke about previously and that I'll come back to in a few slides. We've also made progress with identifying non-core assets to end of life, to potentially divest. Uh, we, we talked about six to $10 million of ARR. Year to date, we've made about $2 million of progress. We are getting really close to a couple of divestitures. Uh, so we've made good progress there. We've made significant improvement in our profitability due in large part to a strategic realignment program that we've been executing this year, where we are investing 31 to $33 million of mostly one-time spend in order to pull out of our run rate 42 to $44 million of existing annual expense. Most of that will have been pulled out by the end of this calendar year. So big leaps forward in terms of profitability. Uh, obviously, we've paused material new M&A during 2020 and 2021. We invested over $500 million to do nine acquisitions. We've done none in 2022, and we're really focused on integrating what we've already acquired. 
we've heard from customers, even from a competitor, that the M&A that we did was, in fact, really important for us to build out our platform and even increase our competitive moat. We've heard that from at least one competitor. Everbridge is years ahead of us at this point, which is great. We want to stay years ahead by focusing on integrating. And so that's what Happy walked through quite a bit, the pathways to platform. Those are really critical to getting our existing base onto CEM and growing towards that $1 billion of ARR. And, of course, meeting and beating expectations in terms of revenue. We began the year with revenue guidance midpoint of $429 million. In November, we increased that to $431 million, uh, targeting 17% growth year over year. That isn't a huge leap forward, but bear with me. Remember the context here uh, and the challenges that we faced throughout the year. We had interim co-CEOs for more than half the year. We have been end-of-lifing some of our products. We've had many millions of dollars of FX headwinds. We've done layoffs, uh, the first in in our history. So there's been a lot going on, you know, what could go wrong amongst that soup. Uh, But we have nevertheless managed to continue to outperform the expectations that we set at the beginning of the year, which is something that we've been doing since IPO. And certainly in terms of profitability, uh, we've been clearly outperforming. We began the year with guidance of adjusted EBITDA of around $34 million, 8% margin. In November, we guided to 10% margin. That's up from 3% uh, margin in 2021. And we're exiting the year at a much stronger rate than that. We're guiding Q4 adjusted EBITDA margin to 16%. And we've already been doing a lot of the work that set up the 2023 guide, which, as you can infer from the numbers, is a margin of around 18%. So lots of outperformance in terms of profitability, lots of accomplishments during 2022. It's been a challenging year. As Dave says, we don't want to repeat 2022 ever, Um, but uh, we have been able to to knock down these really critical um, objectives of ours. And as I said, we're exiting the year on much firmer ground. We're very excited. And we can start to turn the page and think about 2023. So 2023, as you know, we've guided our revenue growth to 6 to 7%. And uh, we've been talking about this bridge from what we've guided Q4 2022, which is 13%, down to a full year of 6 to 7%. And I'll, I'll walk through that bridge again. Sorry for those in the room, this is... Um, probably a little bit small, so I'll go left to right. Uh, But the first um, element of the bridge down to 6 to 7% is that continued end-of-lifing and potential divestitures. Uh, As I said previously, we had targeted 6 to $10 million of ARR. We've made about $2 million of progress, so that leaves 4 to $8 million left as we head into next year. We are we are approaching a couple of divestitures, and uh, it's, it's very possible, very likely that a lot of that ARR exits the business pretty quickly here, some potentially even before the end of this calendar year. Uh, the second bucket going left to right is labeled as reduced QPRs, but part of the layoffs that we've been doing is taking out productive sales capacity. We're really refining the business. We're refining our focus on critical event management, We're rebooting our go-to-market, and making our direct opportunity much more efficient. We're 
shuffling a little bit more of our opportunity towards indirect, especially outside of the U.S., and we've taken productive capacity out. So that does create a headwind as we head into next year, but you know, ideally that's something that, that we work through with a much more efficient go-to-market model. FX is the third one. This year we've had over $5 million of headwinds as it relates to FX. Most of that was in the second half of 2022. So assuming no change to rates, we'll have a similar impact in the first half of 2023. And again, that's something that once we've lapped it, we've lapped it. And that's, that's in the rearview mirror. The fourth bucket there is flat, uh, non-recurring revenue. This year, non-recurring revenue, so that's services, non-recurring licenses. That'll be in the order of 45 to $50 million of revenue this year. We don't anticipate that's going to grow next year. Not, not in total anyway. Different pieces may, may have a little fluctuation, but in total we don't anticipate that that will grow. So that's a headwind to overall growth of about a point. And then the last bucket there, uh, it's only half a point, but as most of you know, we did lose our largest customer earlier this year through a mutual termination. We have been able to recognize a couple million dollars of revenue from that customer this year. Uh, next year we won't recognize any. So. Um, so there are a couple of elements that take us from the 13% that we've guided to in Q4 down to the 6 to 7% uh, for full year 23. And you can tell by the nature of some of these that uh, these are one time, and as we lap them, should be able to walk our revenue growth rate back up as we're entering 24. This table is a look at non-GAAP expenses as a percent of revenue to give you more visibility into what we're thinking for 2023 and how we're building the model. So from left to right, that first column is our updated forecast for 2022, and then our projection for 2023, both full year as well as what you can expect to see in different quarters throughout the year. So starting with adjusted gross margin this year, we're looking at around 73%. Next year, we anticipate that's going to get up to 74. And in fact, we anticipate we'll reach record adjusted gross margin during one of the quarters, probably in the back half of 2023, of close to 76%. And we'll do that by continuing to focus on integration, shaking out inefficiencies in our infrastructure, and continuing to improve the efficiency of our implementations and our services deliveries. Sales and marketing this year, the forecast as a percent of revenue is around 36%. That'll come down to closer to 30 next year. And in fact, when you look at the different quarters as we get through next year, it should, as a percent of revenue, get into the high 20s as we really focus on improving the efficiency of our go-to-market. R&D, similar, 20% this year, 17% next year. Uh, we're going to stay in that sort of high teens range. We could have a quarter where we get to 16%, but we have to continue to invest driving customer value. That's one of our top priorities and maintaining our leadership with critical event management. So we're not going to short shrift R&D, but there are, as we work through these integrations of acquisitions, there are still some inefficiencies that we can shake out of the model. And that's what's reflected here. Similar for GNA, 11% this year. We think it'll be 11% next year, but at least one of the quarters, we should be able to get down to 10%. And we'll, as we talk about long-term model, that'll continue to go down over time. So to summarize the key targets that we're looking at, revenue of 6 to 7%, $85 million of adjusted EBITDA. We have a clear path to that. 
where we intend to exit approaching the rule of 30 and an adjusted EBITDA margin in Q4 of 2023 of around 20%, maybe even a little bit better than that. And free cash flow of $60 million in that neighborhood. I'll come back to that in a couple of slides and as to why that's so important. A couple of key assumptions for you all to, to factor in as, as you build out models are, are flat headcount and OPEX throughout the year. In fact, that may carry well into 2024. We'll be optimizing within our existing envelope. Seasonality will definitely be a part of the model in 2023, similar to what you saw in 2022, both in terms of top line and bottom line. So looking at the top line first, our recurring subscription revenue will continue to tick up sequentially, but the non-recurring portion of our revenue will continue to be lumpy. And we fully expect that we'll see a repeat of the pattern that you saw coming into this year, where Q4 2021 revenue was greater than Q1 2022 revenue, not because of the subscription revenue that went up sequentially, but because of the non-recurring revenue. We were able to make a lot of deliveries in Q4 2021. We weren't able to match that in Q1 2022. So total revenue came down. We expect to see that in Q4 22 versus Q1 23 for the same reasons. In terms of bottom line, even though we'll hold headcount flat and headcount is all in, it's nearly three quarters of our spend when you think about facilities, et cetera. So even though we'll hold that flat, seasonality will impact that as well. Payroll taxes, et cetera, will drive greater expense in Q1 than in Q4, as an example. Certainly assuming continued progress on our sales productivity, continued progress on our technology rationalization. And while stock-based comp doesn't impact these non-GAAP metrics, I figure it's worth calling out that uh, because we've been asked a lot about stock-based comp, and I know you're, you're asking a lot of your investments and the management teams and uh, the companies that you cover. For us, we anticipate that in 2023, we won't be able to issue nearly as many shares as we've issued in 22. 22 has been a special year, turbulent year. We had to do some one-time things. We've been saying that throughout the year. 23, we're not going to be able to do that. And with our stock price being where it is today, let's say that that stays constant through next year. That's a little bit lower than where we issued a number of the 2022 grants. So as those 23 grants sort of average in to the total pool, uh, and as some of those older grants invest and they come out of the stock-based compensation expense amortization, we think that as a percent of revenue, stock-based compensation expense should start to come down, certainly by the time we're exiting 2023. So the key metric by which you're running the business from now on is ARR. Uh, really critical. Um, we are going to be sharing this with you quarterly from now on, so you don't have to do all sorts of gymnastics and you know, look really deeply into RPO or do calculated billings. Taking all that off the table. We're just going to tell you where are we, where is our book of business, how did it change sequentially from quarter to quarter, year over year. And as we get better and better with the data, we will you know, do the best we can to start to peel that onion and give you more color below the top line metric. First, we should level set on the definition. What's in, what's out. So what's in? All SaaS license revenue, all support and maintenance, because that is recurring, and all professional services that are sold as recurring subscription. 
That's about a third of our services revenue today. What's out? Everything else. Um, so whether it's non-recurring licenses, services that are not sold as a subscription, usage, setup fees, and all other non-recurring items. I've asterisked usage and setup fees because as you calibrate this to our, uh, our current public disclosures, uh, in particular our revenue footnote in our SEC filings, in that footnote we break our revenue into three different buckets, uh, subscription, services, and non-recurring licenses. In that footnote, we actually include usage and setup fees in subscription. We do that, or we have been doing that, because usage is sold as a subscription. Setup fees are recognized radically over time, similar to how we recognize the subscription revenue. But as we apply laser focus to the one metric that really matters most to us, ARR, we want to take those out because by nature they are not recurring. We want to focus on what's recurring. So uh, we're taking those out of ARR, and that's, that'll be part of a bridge between uh, those two different metrics. So what is our ARR? For the last three quarters, this is how it's evolved. Uh, this, is, this reflects the best data you know, that we have and, our, and our, the, the job we've been able to do with that data um, over the last couple of months since we you know, began saying that we're going to be talking about ARR uh, externally. Of these metrics, the, the one that I have the most confidence in is the most recent one, September 30th, $370 million of ARR. And I want to give you some insight into what's behind that ARR as of September 30th. So we've broken our ARR into tiers for you. So top tier is all of our customers with ARR of $250,000 or more as of September 30th. And then the rest of our customer base is in the second tier. So that first tier, the, the customers of, uh, with ARR of greater than $250,000, that's around 5% of our customers. As you can see, it's 43% of our ARR. The average ARR within that tier is almost $600,000. So it's, uh, we're already making a, a good amount of progress towards that ARR snowball target of a billion dollars. Uh, largely coming from customers uh, with ARR of $250,000 or more. And you also see that momentum in our count of large deals. This is really uh, the, the area of our go-to-market where we're experiencing the greatest momentum is six-figure deals. Uh, so count of deals $100,000 or greater over the last few years, that count has a CAGR of 28%. And in particular, count of deals of half a million dollars or more. That, over the last few years, that has an 82% CAGR. In fact, in the first three quarters of 2022, we did 32 of those deals. That's greater than the, the count that we did in all of 2021. So we're applying a lot of focus to this area of our business, to really growing the base, as well as landing large net new customers, and we're seeing a lot of momentum there. And that's part of why we're so excited to bring this back to uh, the target that Dave described previously, the billion dollars of ARR, um, because we, you know, this is this is where we're, we're seeing the momentum in our business going clockwise here, starting with the CEM base. As Dave mentioned, we already have 255 of those customers. Not all of them have ARR greater than 
um, about, about a third of them don't. They're below that. So there's a lot of opportunity to grow even the existing CEM base up above that tier. At the high end of our CEM customers, we have a couple dozen CEM customers that are spending over a million dollars with us in ARR. So it's a huge uplift for us to get our customers onto the path to CEM and get them moving up the stack. And then as Dave mentioned, on the right-hand side, we've got hundreds of customers in our base, over 150 customers from NC4 and Anvil. These are hot leads for CEM. These are customers that are already speaking with their wallets that they want to see disruption to their business or potential disruption all day, every day. The faster that we can get them onto our platform, the easier it's going to be for us to grow these into large CEM customers. And the mass notification customers, especially even just those that are in the global 2000 that are in our base today, there's around 500 of those that are just mass notification customers. Again, huge opportunity now that we've rebooted our go-to-market and we've created these clear paths to critical event management to take those customers, most of whom their ARR is below 250000 and get them moving up into that million-dollar category. And then finally, the, the new CM logos in the uh, lower left, as I mentioned on the previous slide, that's where we have a lot of momentum, is landing large deals. So um, this $1 billion of ARR snowball with 1,000 customers, greater than 250,000, on the one hand, it's aspirational. It's something that we're really excited about. On the other hand, we already have most of those 1,000 in our base. We don't even necessarily have to go land a whole bunch of net new customers in order to achieve its target. So we're really excited about now applying much more focus on this opportunity and on ARR from those customers rather than chasing every dollar of revenue, focusing on growing the annual recurring revenue base. But it will be difficult. Um, even though most of those customers are in our base, uh, it, will be, uh, it will be a layup. We've got a lot of work to do. And so that's why, you know, when we think about our long-term model, we don't want to get ahead of our skis. Um, we do have a, a really clear path to profitable growth, as Dave mentioned earlier. But to the extent that we're able to accelerate on that billion dollars of ARR opportunity, we'll, we'll be able to far outperform the top line here through execution. But it's going to be difficult. So for now, as we think about the long-term model, we're really just focused on improving the leverage in the model. We're investing in growth, um, but we want to do it much more efficiently. So some of the key areas of leverage uh, that we have, well, so first, we're, as I mentioned previously, we're going to be optimizing our existing OPEX, not just through 2023, but we anticipate that that dollar spend that we have is going to carry into 2024 as well, and we're going to continue to optimize. We've got a lot of resources today, and we want to continue to uh, get the most return out of those resources as we can. And we think we've got many quarters of optimization ahead of us. And then more specifically, in terms of adjusted gross margin, as I mentioned, in 2022, we're looking at around 73%. As we continue to optimize our infrastructure, as we integrate acquisitions, and we continue to optimize our delivery of implementations and services, we've, we anticipate that our adjusted gross margin in the outer years, 25, 26, 27, That'll, that'll get into the very high 70s, upwards of 79%. Sales and marketing, again, we, you know, we came into this year with 
uh, closer to 40%. But over the next few years, as we optimize our go-to-market, really focus on sales productivity, we anticipate getting into the, call it the mid-20s. And then this range of 22 to 28% will really depend on our appetite for investment as we go. As we build out the CEM opportunity, as we see the, the ROI on the investments, if it makes sense to, to continue to invest uh, in, a, in a really healthy way to drive growth, then we'll, we'll err towards the 28% side. Uh, if instead our revenue growth rate uh, is continuing to, to, to improve, but it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's not necessarily where, uh, it's certainly not back to where it's been in the past, we'll, we'll err on the 22% side of that range. R&D, as I mentioned, and as you heard from Happy, we need to continue to make investments in delivering customer value and the pathways to platform. This is really critical. We need to maintain and even extend our leadership in the CEM category. So we're at around 20% today. We'll get that into the mid to high teens as we continue to optimize our existing resources. And GNA, as I mentioned previously, in particular as we continue to integrate the acquisitions and shake out redundancies. That, as a percent of revenue, will come down from today's 11% to more like 8 to 9%. So many folks have asked, okay, we understand this, uh, these adjusted figures, non-GAAP figures, but tell me about cash. It's great spreadsheets and adjustments. What about cash? Cash is the most important thing. So let me walk you through how our adjusted EBITDA translates into cash. First of all, our adjusted EBITDA is a great proxy for our operating cash flow. And basically the biggest difference there is timing. And the biggest difference from operating cash flow, adjusted EBITDA, versus free cash flow is capitalized software development. There's also timing involved in there, and there's, uh, there's some other miscellaneous amounts, but capitalized software development is the biggest, uh, the biggest delta between the two. So to illustrate this, in 2021, the first three quarters – we drove $11 million of positive adjusted EBITDA. We had capitalized software development costs of around $9 million. Some miscellaneous amounts. First three quarters of 2021, we had free cash flow of negative $1 million. So the difference between adjusted EBITDA and free cash flow is around $12 million. Fast forward to this year, the first three quarters of 2022, we've done $23 million of adjusted EBITDA. Similar amount for capitalized software development, similar amount in the sort of the miscellaneous bucket, free cash flows, positive $9 million before the restructuring one-time spend. So comparing the two periods, adjusted EBITDA has gone up 12, free cash flow has gone up 10. And that's how you can think about the model going forward. That's how, why when we think about $85 million of adjusted EBITDA in 2023, we equate that to roughly $60 million of free cash flow. Capitalized software development will continue to go up a little bit, call it 18, maybe $20 million. There'll be some miscellaneous items and there'll be some restructuring payments. We think that 85 translates roughly to $60 million. Why is that so important? Why is it so important for us to be driving free cash flow? Because we're in a net debt position right now and we have to address this debt. So I'll walk you through this chart uh, which summarizes where we are and where we're headed. From left to right, that first column, we, as of September 30th, $825 million of gross debt. That comes in two tranches. Uh, the first, the top one, is $450 million maturing in 2024. 
The second is $375 million maturing in 2026. Also, as of September 30th, we had $490 million of cash. So more than enough to cover what matures in 2024, but obviously not enough to cover the full amount, the net debt as of September 30th, $335 million. And that's roughly nine times our adjusted EBITDA for 2022. So not a good ratio. It's, you know, that's out of whack. So we have to make a lot of progress towards that quickly. How will we make that progress? Well, first and foremost, we are actively working to retire 2024s at a discount. We have authorization to retire up to $300 million of 2024 debt at logical discounts. We've been working through that. We think that we can get a discount of between 8 to 9% on that $300 million based on where uh, those bonds are trading today. That is a little bit better than if we were to put all that money into, for example, uh, the, the equivalent cash into 12-month you know, treasuries. And has the added benefit, if we use it to take out debt at a discount, of giving you certainty that we are taking out the debt. We are reducing our net debt position. So I've got $26 million there representing if we got 8 to 9% discount on that full $300 million. As of today, we are more than halfway there. And we hope that by the end of this week, we will be 90% of the way there, uh, given individual transactions with existing bondholders. So that's an important piece. Uh, next chunk is, of course, the free cash flow for 2023 that I mentioned. Uh, so call that around $60 million. That means that by the end of 2023, our net debt would be $249, $250 million on adjusted EBITDA of $85 million. So that's net debt. That's less than three times our adjusted EBITDA for the year. That's a much better ratio. And then moving forward, I declined to, to build out this chart, but you might imagine 2024 free cash flow is going to be at least 60. 2025 free cash flow is going to be at least 60. These might be closer to 80, 80 plus. And as we approach 2026, that net debt position is either going to be gone because we will have retired it because free cash flow will be really strong, or it'll be closer to $100 million. And we're driving at that point $100 million of free cash flow. So at that point, we would go and pursue straight conventional bank debt in order to retire the rest. Uh, which we think makes a lot of sense. Good for shareholders. Uh, wouldn't do some sort of uh, one of the, uh, with all due respect, one of the uh, colorful um, uh, proposals for convertible debt refi that I receive every week. Uh, many, many proposals um, that, that sound wonderful, except they have this huge dilutive impact that's down the road. Uh, politely declining those, we're going to take care of this out of our own pockets. And if we need to get some conventional bank debt towards the end, we think we'll qualify for that. I mean, who knows what the debt markets will look like, but if we have $100 million of net debt, we're driving $100 million of free cash flow, we think we'll get that loan. I think that'll be a, you know, pretty good terms. So we've got our work cut out for us, but we also have a clear path to executing on this. And this is uh, – Dave hasn't said that net debt is the second most uh, metric uh, for the business, but I'll, uh, certainly from, with the hat I wear, it, it is the second most right behind the ARR. We have, to, we have to address this, and we will. Uh, just summarize allocation priorities. As I said, retire existing debt. We have to keep the lights on. We have to continue to invest. We're not losing sight of, the, of driving customer value. We're just going to do it in a much more focused manner than we've been doing in recent years. And once we've got the debt behind us, once we've got the debt behind us, we will revisit M&A. We are a platform company. 
despite all the talent and the conviction of our development team, we know that we're not going to invent everything within our four walls. And uh, you know, the market keeps moving, technology keeps moving, talent keeps moving. So we, we want to have the flexibility to consider M&A to preserve and potentially extend our competitive moat. But we can't do that until the debt is addressed. So clearly that's, that's, um, that's a couple years into the future. So to summarize from a financial standpoint, why we're so excited about the opportunity at Everbridge, why we're, we think that it's such a great investment opportunity. As you've heard us say throughout the day, a leader in a growing early stage category. We've got a very large market opportunity, even as we refine it, and we focus on the most serviceable, addressable elements of those markets, still a large opportunity. We've got a very targeted path to a billion dollars of ARR, and we are already dramatically increasing our profitability along that path with a recurring revenue model, which is a key focus going forward, customer base that's sticky and growing, and the solid capital allocation strategy. We're addressing the debt overhang. And that's it. Uh, I think we are transitioning to Q&A with the senior management team. And we'll quickly, yeah, so we'll take one minute. You can ask Nandan all of the hard questions. Thank you. All right, just a couple of uh, housekeeping items. First, I'll, I'll work uh, introductions, um, members of the management team. Patrick, of course, uh, you've met Happy. You can go on next. Uh, you met Happy, our SVP of uh, Engineering and Product Management. Abik Besnavi has been with the company seven or eight years? Six years. Six years. Time flies. <laughs> um, uh, Vic has led many of our M&A integrations over uh, his six-year tenure. He leads uh, a go-to-market facing group we call Center of Excellence uh, that's really uh, at the front edge of most of our large uh, enterprise customer engagements. Uh, David Alexander, who joined in September, is our chief marketing officer I mentioned. In the back of the room, not on stage, uh, Noah Webster in day two as our new uh, chief legal officer. We can... He could take questions, but we chose not to bring him on stage on his, on his second date. Uh, and me, uh, just as a reminder, uh, we have uh, about five times as many people participating online as we have in the room. So um, just want to be very cognizant of those who are with us but not, not in the room and make sure that they're participating in, in this experience as well. Nandan will be fielding their questions uh, over the internet and presenting those. Uh, questions in the room, if you could just wait a moment till we get a microphone handed to you. Again, so those online participants will be able to hear your questions as well as, 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 well as our response. Um, we have about 30 minutes. Yep. 
for this segment, and then we have another hour and 15 minutes after the last piece of the segment, which is you know, why we chose this location. Our risk intelligence management uh, center is upstairs on the eighth floor, so we'll work to escort those who want to participate in that last section up to the eighth floor, and you'll have an opportunity to uh, interact with our risk analysts and see even more than the demo a day in the life of what a risk intelligence officer is doing and what they uh, contribute um, to our, our customers and, and the overall value proposition. So with that, I'll open the floor for questions. Great. Am I on there? Okay. Yep. Great, thanks. Yeah, uh, Will Power with Baird. Um, thanks for hosting this. Great to get to Is that us up here? Sorry about that. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, we'll try that again. Let me just uh, jump straight in, uh, either for uh, Dave or uh, Patrick here. I would love to just get your perspective on, you know, framework for growth as we move past 2023. I understand the different impacts, um, you know, this coming year. I know you laid out a CEM CAGR of, I think, like 12 to 15% or so. Is that the right starting point as we kind of move into 24? I know you're not providing guidance per se, but how do we think about the framework for what the growth can look like for this company yeah. longer term? You know, I think that's fair. So it, um, we provided a framework, uh, not a guide. We've uh, been judicious, I think, in the way we're looking at the growth. This 500 point or five point, I guess it's not basis points, we think about rule of 40, but the um, five point increase in the rule of 40 next year you know, largely a reversal of some of those waterfall down, waterfall back. Um, you know, we are cognizant that we're in a it, you know, more difficult economic environment than we've been in the last several years. Of course, that's uh, affecting how we're looking at, at the opportunity. But the biggest thing to keep in mind is uh, as powerful as our legacy is, that mass notification business that we entered into in the early market stages, um, you know, it's, it has more competitive pricing pressure. Our disclosures show that that's been flat declining. That's our largest um, cohort of customers. And so that, that is um, in, in some ways you know, retarding the overall growth that, that uh, we're looking, um, we're looking to, uh, to provide. And that anchors uh, the, the thinking around um, uh, you know, the more prudent range we're showing there. Um, we have been achieving uh, growth rates greater than those market rates in our CEM category. The way the numbers come together internally, as you can imagine, with cross-selling and up-selling, we do not have really clean, clear disclosures for that at this time, um, but we are uh, achieving growth rates within um, the risk intelligence data, the visualization, and the, the platform area that are well in excess of those market growth rates. So hopefully that contextualizes it um, for you. Next question. Great, thanks. Uh, Scott Berg with Needham. I'm going to ask a compound question that's totally not related to each other. That's all right. Um, kind of an extension to Will's question there is on the cross-sell, upsell, um, I guess what needs to be done to drive a better or healthier cross-sell rate kind of going forward? Because a lot of what you talked about today was really driving like those 500, you know, roughly 500 mass notification customers in the G2K and, and trying to upsell them more. And then secondly, uh, Patrick, with, re with regards to the new ARR metric, you know, a decent chunk of the business over the last year or two has been the non-recurring license part of the business. How do we think about that impacting the business going forward? Do you still continue to sell that, or will it be kind of an, an add-on component to, uh, you know, to those financial thoughts? Thanks. 
exactly. Um, compound question, um, part one is the upsell cross-sell. And so I, I think, well, I know I gave, um, you know, four different examples of how that's worked in real life. Um, the area, and they're all important areas, and we're working, going to work on growing our existing CEMs, pathways to platform, mass notification up, and new customer wins. All four of those will be ex- ex- exercising all four of those. The one I'm actually most excited about are these pathways to platform. Um, the over 150 RC9 customers who are not, it's really difficult to cross-sell when they have to log into a completely different application to get the benefits of the platform. And for various reasons, um, um, feature reasons, these 150 customers are choosing to stay on the legacy platform as opposed to the new platform. We've reduced those barriers dramatically as of October the 1st. We will eliminate the um, the feature barriers uh, to those migrations by this time next year so that we can uh, move you know, all of those uh, RC9 customers to the platform. Our experience shows us, um, as you saw in the examples I gave, when they move to the platform, able to take, that makes the cross-sell motion so much easier. They just turn on the uh, additional functionality in the platform. So that, uh, to me, is, is you know, answer one in the next in the next 12 months uh, that, that we're focused on to, to grow that base. And the Anvil base of about 100 will kick in. Um, it can kind of kick in now, but there are feature barriers um, until probably this time next year. We'll start to um, make the pathway to platform for those uh, Anvil customers more obvious. And the non-recurring revenue is important. Uh, in particular, within that, the uh, countrywide alerting, most of that, is non-recurring revenue. So when we sell uh, communications capabilities to an entire country, and we're, we're the leader at that, uh, their buying preference continues to overwhelmingly be to implement on-prem and, and, and have a perpetual license for that technology. So we say yes to that. We don't say no. We, we, we do it begrudgingly because that's so strategic for us. Uh, we have experienced over time that as we land large geographies, it becomes much easier for us to, to find open doors within those geographies to drive incremental business. And uh, it, uh, we will continue to sell countrywide alerting. It, it, it's really critical. And um, as Dave mentioned at the outset of today, um, the, the one most important word um, that we're all working towards is alignment, alignment internally and what really matters the most uh, as we head towards that billion dollars of ARR, we want to focus on ratable recurring revenue and renewing that at better and better rates. And countrywide alerting, some of the other uh, non-recurring revenue, that'll help create some opportunities for us to grow that ARR, but it is not ARR. And uh, we'll be managing it a little bit separately. Happy in in her section had a chart where those perpetual products were off uh, sort of to a side. We had core CEM in the middle and the perpetual products off to the side. They are different. They, we think that we can manage them much more efficiently if we manage them a little bit differently uh, than we do, you know, the, sort of the core of the business. Um, so still important. We, we, we love those businesses, but it's not ratable recurring revenue. We want to manage it accordingly. Yeah, and if I could take that one question, one derivative further. So compound uh, question with two-part answer on the derivative. Um, <laughs> Uh, when we think about the focus on annual recurring revenue, one of the areas we're really focusing on are the non-recurring professional services parts of our revenue stream. And so as we get focused on the one thing that matters the most, as a very specific example, um, 
and it comes, our ability to focus on this comes in, in, uh, in part to pausing material M&A and getting kind of back to basics and simplifying. But we are road mapping in the first three quarters of the year um, product improvements that will take out thousands and thousands, like let's go over 10,000 hours of PS opportunity. Um, things that we previously would have charged customers for the configuration, not customization, but the configuration of the product that we're focusing, like you'd expect, dev dollars on re reducing those repetitive tasks, you know, taking away the um, one-time professional services revenue with the hope of capturing more ARR revenue. So if you think of it, a three-year project um, that might have, whatever the number is, $100,000 of PS implementation configuration for $100,000 a year for three years, $400,000 over three years, we'd like to turn that into zero professional service dollars and $130,000 ARR opportunity. And so that's another real specific reason our ARR focus is adjusting the growth rate on the non-recurring part of the business. Brian Colley from Stevens. Uh, Thank you all for the presentations today. I thought they were all really helpful. Um, so just to start off, can you – I'll give this to you, Dave. Can you help us to better, better understand uh, how you're baking in any level of economic conservatism in the, the five-year uh, Rule of 40 outlook that you gave? Uh, and what are you assuming in terms of net retention rate uh, over the next five years? Okay. I'll take on both of those, again, within the framework that we've discussed and not giving guidance on um, and out years prematurely. Um, you know, one of the things that I was asked over and over by internal colleagues with the reduction of 300 um, positions over the course of the year, you know, Dave, are you confident um, that we're not having any more layoffs? And my answer is yes, I am confident we're not having any more layoffs, but I'm not certain that we're not having any layoffs. It wouldn't be prudent in my way of thinking to, to cut so deep that we were certain there was never any possibility of, of layoff. I think Patrick did a really good job of articulating how we're thinking about um, aligning and deploying our 1,735 people around the continuous improvement process over the next you know, four to eight quarters keeping headcount relatively flat as people leave the organization, being really careful about where we replace them in the organization and driving through efficiencies as we do the real hard integration work and, and not uh, prematurely redeploying people. So our frame of mind going in uh, to 23 and for you know, several quarters thereafter is you know, working within this cost base, having cut um, a meaningful amount of expense, uh, but not so meaningful as to, you know, as to cripple the capacity of the company, to focus on the, the real internal work that needs to happen so that we work more efficiently inside the organization to, um, to optimize the model. So hopefully that gives you a pretty good way of how we're thinking about it. We are not thinking about doing more layoffs to take more cost out of the organization. We're thinking about the natural things that we can do to become more efficient and, and drive it up incrementally over time. All right, so we're going to move the mic across the room. <laughs> yeah, hey, guys. Thanks. Parker Lane at Stiefel. Um, Two-part question. The first is on CEM. Um, 
at what point do you find uh, that it's a good fit for organizations strategically, financially, from a scale perspective, whether it's employees, assets, um, you know, revenue? And then the second one's on mass notification. Um, obviously, the roots of the company, you're the market leader there, yeah. but it's still relatively underpenetrated from a logo perspective. Um, given the more streamlined go-to-market and product uh, moves you guys are making, how much of an emphasis is there on just capturing that long-tail opportunity of logos going forward? Okay, let me answer the latter one. I'd like to, to uh, turn it over to Vic. He works, as I mentioned in the introduction, with um, you know, kind of most of our large enterprise deals, and without giving brand names or sales cycles, maybe bring to mind um, a couple of more recent sure. uh, customers you've worked with and how they're thinking about CEM. Sure. So the question is, <clears throat> what makes for a good profile of a CEM prospect, uh, if I read the question clearly? So um, the way to think about that is three vectors. Um, first vector, the simplistic one is, as Patrick and Dave said, an existing average customer who already has mass notification. Maybe they have one or two more products, uh, but didn't have the appetite to go whole, whole completely into CEM. Um, what do we do there to kind of nurture them into that mode? Typically, one of two things happens. Either a compelling event happens, like the ones you saw from my team, um, and the customer themselves comes back to a realization that they need that. Or the second vector in certain verticals is regulatory uh, uh, compliance uh, regulations or stuff like that. If, if maybe not reach, uh, passing an audit or a new attestation that pops up and that forces them to go towards resilience and then they start to look for something and they say, wait, we already have this. Let's kind of walk you through it. The second, uh, the, the second vector is those customers um, who essentially have uh, some portions of CEM, like the four stories that you heard from Dave, um, and they just have to cross the last mile. And it might be miles, one or two miles, but they pretty much are halfway through. They may have started on the digital side or on the physical side, um, and an economic buyer, somebody in the organization says, I want to consolidate tools, I want to reduce my number of vendor footprint, uh, and if I'm going to get a unified response to you, like you saw today as a journey, then that's the, the, you know, that's the way to grow into CEM. The first one is typically those types of customers or prospects, I should say, that have a very large global footprint. People, assets, facilities, um, sometimes multiple lines of business. Um, I even attribute those who are highly regulated sometimes, you know, their, their reason for that. Um, and one common thread I see amongst all of them is uh, for whom their brand and reputation is very important, right? So they, they cannot afford to show up in the headline news for the wrong reason, so to speak. Um, typically, they have a dialogue with us, but the thing that accelerates the discussion about CEM is, again, either a compelling event happens somewhere in the world that they look at and go, okay, I, I don't want to be in that situation again, or um, we do with them build a business case. We actually help with them in a consultative way of selling, build a business case, and the business case goes into three, three dimensions, depending on their CFO's appetite for which one it is. One is the disruption or minimization of their revenue impact. So they need help sometimes on articulating using an actual business model that we build for them as to what a critical event or a disruption or interruption has on their revenue. You know, in, in layman terms, I would say you're bleeding. How, you know, how much bleeding do you need to have before you invest in 
in, in remediating it. The, the second one is the OPEX element of response, the cost of response. A lot of organizations essentially look at it now as a cost element that they would rather squeeze out of the organization through automation, through a platform approach like we discussed here. So that's the second element of the business case. And the third one is, which you saw in a lot of the presentations, is the risk index or risk appetite or the resilience score. You can use any of these elements to talk about it. Uh, a lot of that has to do with ESG posture. A lot of it also has to do in, in those that are highly regulated. It's mandatory in, in many cases to do that. Um, certainly, just to tie it back to what eventually creates even a more compelling reason is if the country essentially has gone Everbridge for public warning, you know, we call it the network effect. They kind of look at it and say, wait, as a citizen, I get alerts from Everbridge. Why wouldn't I go with them for my employees, my partners, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So hopefully that yeah. – and, and I'll jump off on the second part. So CEM is clearly our focus. Those larger enterprise customers are we're seeing the most momentum. Uh, but, you know, the question was asked about the growth rate and, you know, why it's lower. You know, we are focused on the mass notification customer base. And so the other thing – you know, one of the other things we're doing is we pause material M&A. It's going back to our knitting and working on our roadmap for the core um, mass notification customers. We're looking at um, uh, especially the enterprises 2,000 and above. So the 5,000 and above is where we're really targeting, but for 2,000 and above, those are accounts that could easily be 250K of ARR or greater as they mature. We know that the number one pathway to platform, you've heard that from some of the customer examples here in the room, they start with a simple notification solution before they mature, uh, to wanting to you know, to know, um, know earlier or improve continuously, and so that's the you know still the number one on point. And so we're we're going to be focusing more on that mass notification business if we can move that from a, a negative growth rate to a, even a plus two, three, four. That will make a big difference in that in that overall growth. So that's another set of programs um, that we're paying a lot of attention to as we enter into into 2023. Oh yeah. All right, thanks. This is Alex Sklar with Raymond James. So I kind of want to follow up on that and Will's question earlier. But as we think about kind of the bigger picture growth algorithm, you talked about outperforming kind of that market on the core CEM side, but a lot of the business is still outside of core CEM. So can you talk about like the growth you're seeing from some of the non-core non -core CEM, the X matters or, or mass notification, how that impacts kind of the growth formula? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, uh, that question as well. So one of the things we're doing, and you've heard me say, um, optimize the sub-brands. And so, you know, X Matters is a very important sub-brand. It's our largest, um, you know, ARR sub-brand. And so we're, we're um, readjusting our sales force entering into 2023. So we're putting dedicated sellers back on to um, that sub-brand. You know, maybe give Happy a chance to talk really quickly about how um, powerful that X matters workflow is capability again as we think about the future. If you want. Yes. Um, so I think um, one thing is we we actually leverage X matter on both sides. So one of the things is we actually leverage the workflow to to really bring um, our core CM vision as one platform. But we also kind of leverage our CM to help landing more X matter customer too. So again, I think the whole uh, you you see a lot of you know presentation today is. We, the beauty about cross-sell um, to different business units is all about to bring to a one platform vision. If we look at X Matter, if just doing head-to-head -head competition, we 
page duty, we service now, probably is not going to have a lot of growth rate. But if we tie X Meta story with overall CM vision, then we can land a lot more digital customer on the physical side. So today we actually have some demo, right? People show how the digital events end up showing our visual command center. So I think we have this demo. So I think um, the goal for us is really even, even you know, uh, XMAT is one, and we have other customer we acquired, um, Snapcom, same situation. We have um, Envio integration part. So those are um, the client we, uh, the customer we acquired, uh, the, the company we acquired over the years. They have a standalone product, but uh, the goal is really also bring them into the whole CM you know, platform vision. So we also can help, not only help us to drive our core CM value, um, the revenue, but we also can help them to just land in their own digital customer. So we talked to um, some customer today. They, they're using XMeta product. Um, they are thinking uh, how we continue to actually land the expand XMeta side to tie with other parts of the resilience so um, to actually drive a more customer value. Um, Vic, you want to add something? So Vic has a lot of experience. I think it would be a good time to try and get a couple yeah. questions from the, uh, the um, webcast audience. Right. Uh, so the first question, uh, this is either for Dave or Patrick. Uh, in the context of the five-year rule of 40 plan, how do we think about stock-based compensation um, as both a recruiting and retention tool? And also from a financial model perspective, as a percentage of revenue over yeah, the next. I'll take years. the first cut, and then you can maybe come behind with, with some more of the numbers. So that's a really important um, area for us. It's a very important area of um, you know of, of executive compensation and attracting the right talent. It's a super important area as you move from 30% growth to um, to the six to seven percent growth. You can't be um, issuing shares greater than your growth rate and expect to deliver uh, long-term shareholder value. So we're uh, really cognizant of um, stock-based comp and its impact on shareholder value. We have, we have some from and to to navigate through. Um, 2022 was a, was a choppy year for the company, and, and stock-based comp rep represented a meaningful part of the retentive programs that were put into place. Um, hired some, some um some new senior executives, which um, put some pressure on the stock-based compensation. But as, as we look forward um, you know, to, to the way our stock plan, plan refresh works, um, you know, which is obviously in the disclosures, the automatic 3% refresh through January 1st, 2025, you know, we're going to need to be in the, in, the, in the mid, slightly low the mid single digit in terms of stock, stock plan uh, comp issuance of the next um, uh, three and a half years or so, and and if you look back at you know the history that at at Zix, we were able to to grow and profitably grow a company with stock based compensation in that range. Uh, it is going to be a bit of a challenge. The market um, has been higher than that in pure in pure companies, but we're not the only one facing uh, questions from shareholders. And I would expect that that um, that what we're thinking of is probably relatively in line with the market. So that's how we're thinking about it in terms of numbers. I think Patrick gave some yeah. <clears throat> In previous years, uh, not only was the stock price higher, but we were expanding uh, the pool of recipients within the business, um, getting to, to now you know, well over half of employees, half stock. And on the one hand, well, I think that's important. Um, we have to, looking forward, uh, we have to reconsider that and, um, and, and allocate differently and probably more narrowly. 
uh, and do other things uh, as it relates to, to recruitment and compensation and benefits and investing in our employees and career pathing uh, and culture and being very intentional about that um, in order to, to sort of you know, make up for what the past had been a, a heavy reliance on equity-based compensation. And uh, part of the layoffs that we did earlier this year were, were focused on, on, on Director Plus, or, or a significant element of those layoffs were, were focused on Director Plus, and a number of, um, that's where a lot of our equity was concentrated. So, uh, so the mix going forward, the volume going forward will be less, and uh, you know, the math for that, assuming the stock price doesn't move, uh, would be that stock-based compensation over time would, would begin to decrease as a percent of revenue. Any more from the web? None done. Yes, we have several more, so I'll take the next one. Uh, what are the primary drivers of the $20 billion refined TAM, uh, down from the 41 that we've shared prior? And within that 41, there was a $26 billion number that was attributed to CEM. So is that 26 going to 20 a function of Price compression, lower unit expectations. It's really market uh, overall market penetration. So the last, the previous estimate was a full penetration to a full set of customers as we refine the estimate. There are certain organizations that we don't think would, you know, um, ever um, take on CEM. And as we're then we're building it, triangulating with a bottoms up correlation to the uh, to the analyst covered subsegments of CEM and, and marrying those two ups, I would say it's refinement that's not a, a price compression, uh, but a, a, a refinement and, and narrowing of, of overall penetration. A question back to the room. Uh, David Unger, Wells Fargo, thanks for your time. Uh, can you just talk about the pipeline you're seeing and just deal cycle trends in general? Do you want to take that? Or I'll take it. Um, chief Revenue Officer. Uh, yeah, so, you know, in the overall, um, yeah, Chief Revenue Officer, thank you for that. <laughs> I'm actually I, I really enjoying uh, my interim uh, Chief Revenue Officer uh, time. I've been able to really dig in um, with the SVPs and the, and the directors, and uh, particularly on 2023 pl planning and some things we've talked about on 2023 planning. On, on the uh, on the overall deal cycle, you know we've been you know really clear on you know not um, you know changing anything we've said that were there were um, no deals in the second quarter impacted by economics one in in the third that kind of gives you a sense of what we've been thinking about. Patrick shared the large deal momentum we've been seeing uh, year over year, and as we have, have moved through the, the quarters of, of this year. Um, with I think it was 70 deals over 100K yep. last quarter, 31 uh, new CM deals last quarter. So we, we're continuing to see good momentum. One of the reasons I think we're seeing relatively good momentum is back to Vic's point in the business case automation um, that happens and we're able to actually save customers money. You heard that um, even in some of Ken's remarks for making these, the uh, analysts more efficient to have lower investment in headcount and higher investment in technology is one of the things we've been able to weigh into. The other thing that I would add is back to um, digital marketing. I'll give uh, David Alexander a moment to share with you his plans on uh, working uh, with Paul and Stefika on, on digital demand gen. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we know that about, well, research tells us that about our customers about 70% of the way through their journey with us before they ever talk to a seller and so we're in the process right now of completely retooling our digital approach, uh, which would include the digital experience. 
um, not only how we engage with new customers, but also existing customers and start to share with them the value of Everbridge and how we can take them on those paths. You know, Dave showed the, the four paths, uh, how we take them down those four paths and continue to move them toward that CEM uh, journey with us. And so there's a real digital component there. Um, we're doing a lot of work right now to make sure our marketing organization, our sellers are actually shaking hands uh, so that digital journey that they go through doesn't just end when they hand the baton over to the seller. We continue to work in tandem through that full journey as they go from you know, pipeline to close deal and then even beyond that as they um, you know, continue to be customers with us so that we can drive up that retention rate uh, as well. So a real focus on how we use digital at all stages of that customer journey and experience. And we'll wind that at time. I'll take one more from the internet and one more from the room. Now and then you have one. Yeah, so the next one online uh, says, as the market leader in mass notification, why has that segment flatlined? So why is that segment flatlined? Um, so we are the leader. And the, the three things that we do best in the world is, um, uh, you know, making sure that messages are delivered in mass, you know, scalability. We saw that Florida, 10 and a half, um, million messages uh, issued across a, a you know, short uh, time period, multimodality of those messages and internationality, globally, local, being able to deliver in more geographies than any of our competitors around the world, uh, a, a home country phone number. So if there's a mass notification going from a global enterprise account being initiated in New York City to an employee in India, they get a country code India message that we provide more coverage that way than any of our competition. Uh, and that is a really strong foundation from which to build the CEM base, the really great competitive advantages. Uh, you know, and, and you know, Jeff was here to talk about our advantages right here inside Loudoun County. But if you can imagine inside Loudoun County or even more specifically inside a city or town, um, those differentiations don't hold up as well if we're talking about it. Um, uh, um, a, a town in Massachusetts has 7,500 7, residents. They don't have the deep scalability requirement. They ought not as important a multimodal, and they surely don't care about delivering outside of North America. And so in that segment of the customer base, there's, you know, there's a, a level of competition, a, you know, price competition, where our deep differentiators don't stand as stand strong. So that's the most direct answer I can give uh, to the question um, around the, the mass notification pressure. In the room, yeah? Uh, just one second, we'll get to the mic, Julie. Thank you. Um, I get the impression that the, most of the focus on bringing in new business is from the base. Is that correct? And what do you need from new logos? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. Uh, so that's one of the things I feel good about is that um, we can drive the majority of our growth through the strong base of customers. One of the other things we're doing for 23 is um, segmenting into a hunter-farmer market. So I don't know how far in the past, but for sure this year uh, we've not differentiated between um, new logo selling and installed base selling, and that. You know, sub-optimizes um, the hard work it takes to bring in new clients. And so um, we have a set of sellers who are really good at getting new logos. We're organizing them into one team beginning uh, January the 1st. I, that's one of the other go-to-market improvements I'm really excited about as we move into 2023. As I did the pathway to a billion 
and did the pathway from the 255 or whatever the number Patrick gave you, about 67% is already over 250. As we build that uh, around the ring, you know, I think um, there'll be at least 250 net new logos in the thousand um, um, when we get there. And, and we're focused on, you know, bringing in at least 20% of our, probably a little bit more than 20% of our of our uh, new order bookings this year with new, with new clients. So we're definitely getting refocused on, on new logos. All right, well, we are not going to run away. Um, this has uh, concluded our uh, prepared Q&A time. Uh, as many of you who would like to join us, we're going to go upstairs to ninth floor. We'll give uh, a few minutes for uh, uh, break and a few minutes to let the elevators work without being all the way packed in. Uh, when you come off the elevators, um, you'll, see, you'll see the, the Everbridge office. We'll have the doors open and, and escort you into the left, into our room. See, it's a very large space. We'll fit us all, and then we'll have a, uh, a chance for our risk analysts to share with you in more detail how our customers enjoy the, the power of the uh, information to, to know early and respond faster. Again, thank you very much. For those of you who have been uh, online with us, I know it's even more arduous uh, uh, to stay focused for a four-hour period online. We really appreciate you and your attendance and participation in today's uh, EverBridge Investor Relations Day. Thank you.